Minds, Brains, and Programs. John R. Searle. Department of Philosophy, University of California, Berkeley, California. 94,720. Abstract. This article can be viewed as an attempt to explore the consequences of two propositions. One, intentionality in human beings, and animals, is a product of causal features of the brain. I assume this is an empirical fact about the actual causal relations between mental processes and brains. It says simply that certain brain processes are sufficient for intentionality. Two, instantiating a computer program is never by itself a sufficient condition of intentionality. The main argument of this paper is directed at establishing this claim. The form of the argument is to show how a human agent could instantiate the program and still not have the relevant intentionality. These two propositions have the following consequences. 3. The explanation of how the brain produces intentionality cannot be that it does it by instantiating a computer program. This is a strict logical consequence of 1 and 2. 4. Any mechanism capable of producing intentionality must have causal powers equal to those of the brain. This is meant to be a trivial consequence of 1. 5. Any attempt literally to create intentionality artificially, strong AI, could not succeed just by designing programs but would have to duplicate the causal powers of the human brain. This follows from 2 and 4. Could a machine think? On the argument advanced here only a machine could think, and only very special kinds of machines, namely brains and machines with internal causal powers equivalent to those of brains. And that is why strong AI has little to tell us about thinking, since it is not about machines but about programs, and no program by itself is sufficient for thinking. What psychological and philosophical significance should we attach to recent efforts at computer simulations of human cognitive capacities? In answering this question, I find it useful to distinguish what I will call, strong, AI from, weak, or, cautious, AI, artificial intelligence. According to weak AI, the principal value of the computer in the study of the mind is that it gives us a very powerful tool. For example, it enables us to formulate and test hypotheses in a more rigorous and precise fashion. But according to strong AI, the computer is not merely a tool in the study of the mind. Rather, the appropriately programmed computer really is a mind, in the sense that computers given the right programs can be literally said to understand and have other cognitive states. In strong AI, because the programmed computer has cognitive states, the programs are not mere tools that enable us to test psychological explanations, rather, the programs are themselves the explanations. I have no objection to the claims of weak AI, at least as far as this article is concerned. My discussion here will be directed at the claims I have defined as those of strong AI specifically the claim that the appropriately programmed computer literally has cognitive states and that the programs thereby explain human cognition. When I hereafter refer to AI, I have in mind the strong version, as expressed by these two claims. One will consider the work of Roger Shank and his colleagues at Yale, Shank and Abelson 1977, because I am more familiar with it than I am with any other similar claims, and because it provides a very clear example of the sort of work I wish to examine. But nothing that follows depends upon the details of Shank's programs. The same arguments would apply to Winograd's SHRDLU, Winograd 1973, Weizenbaum's ELISA, Weizenbaum 1965, and indeed any Turing machine simulation of human mental phenomena. Very briefly, and leaving out the various details, one can describe Shank's program as follows. The aim of the program is to simulate the human ability to understand stories. It is characteristic of human beings' story understanding capacity that they can answer questions about the story even though the information that they give was never explicitly stated in the story. Thus, for example, suppose you are given the following story. A man went into a restaurant and ordered a hamburger. When the hamburger arrived it was burned to a crisp, and the man stormed out of the restaurant angrily, without paying for the hamburger or leaving a tip. Now, if you are asked, did the man eat the hamburger? You will presumably answer, no, he did not. Similarly, if you are given the following story. A man went into a restaurant and ordered a hamburger. When the hamburger came he was very pleased with it, and as he left the restaurant he gave the waitress a large tip before paying his bill and you are asked the question, did the man eat the hamburger? 
you will presumably answer, yes, he ate the hamburger. Now Shanks machines can similarly answer questions about restaurants in this fashion. To do this, they have a representation of the sort of information that human beings have about restaurants, which enables them to answer such questions as those above, given these sorts of stories. When the machine is given the story and then asked the question, the machine will print out answers of the sort that we would expect human beings to give if told similar stories. Partisans of strong AI claim that in this question and answer sequence the machine is not only simulating a human ability but also 1. That the machine can literally be said to understand the story and provide the answers to questions, and 2. That what the machine and its program do explains the human ability to understand the story and answer questions about it. Both claims seem to me to be totally unsupported by Shank's one work, as I will attempt to show in what follows. One way to test any theory of the mind is to ask oneself what it would be like if my mind actually worked on the principles that the theory says all minds work on. Let us apply this test to the Shank program with the following Seedankan experiment. Suppose that I'm locked in a room and given a large batch of Chinese writing. Suppose furthermore, as is indeed the case, that I know no Chinese, either written or spoken, and that I'm not even confident that I could recognize Chinese writing as Chinese writing distinct from, say, Japanese writing or meaningless squiggles. To me, Chinese writing is just so many meaningless squiggles. Now suppose further that after this first batch of Chinese writing I am given a second batch of Chinese script together with a set of rules for correlating the second batch with the first batch. The rules are in English, and I understand these rules as well as any other native speaker of English. They enable me to correlate one set of formal symbols with another set of formal symbols, and all that, formal, means here is that I can identify the symbols entirely by their shapes. Now suppose also that I am given a third batch of Chinese symbols together with some instructions, again in English, that enable me to correlate elements of this third batch with the first two batches, and these rules instruct me how to give back certain Chinese symbols with certain sorts of shapes in response to certain sorts of shapes given me in the third batch. Unknown to me, the people who are giving me all of these symbols call the first batch, a script, they call the second batch a, story, and they call the third batch, questions. Furthermore, they call the symbols I give them back in response to the third batch, answers to the questions, and the set of rules in English that they gave me, they call, the program. Now just to complicate the story a little, imagine that these people also give me stories in English, which I understand, and they then ask me questions in English about these stories, and I give them back answers in English. Suppose also that after a while I get so good at following the instructions for manipulating the Chinese symbols and the programmers get so good at writing the programs that from the external point of view, that is, from the point of view of somebody outside the room in which I am locked my answers to the questions are absolutely indistinguishable from those of native Chinese speakers. Nobody just looking at my answers can tell that I don't speak a word of Chinese. Let us also suppose that my answers to the English questions are, as they no doubt would be, indistinguishable from those of other native English speakers, for the simple reason that I am a native English speaker. From the external point of view from the point of view of someone reading my answers, the answers to the Chinese questions and the English questions are equally good. But in the Chinese case, unlike the English case, I produce the answers by manipulating uninterpreted formal symbols. As far as the Chinese is concerned, I simply behave like a computer, I perform computational operations on formally specified elements. For the purposes of the Chinese, I am simply an instantiation of the computer program. Now the claims made by strong AI are that the program computer understands the stories and that the program in some sense explains human understanding. But we are now in a position to examine these claims in light of our thought experiment. 1. As regards the first claim, it seems to me quite obvious in the example that I do not understand a word of the Chinese stories. I have inputs and outputs that are indistinguishable from those of the native Chinese speaker, and I can have any formal program you like, but I still understand nothing. For the same reasons, Shank's computer understands nothing of any stories, whether in Chinese, English, or whatever, since in the Chinese case the computer is me, and in cases where the computer is not me, the computer has nothing more than I have in the case where I understand nothing. 
2. As regards the second claim, that the program explains human understanding, we can see that the computer and its program do not provide sufficient conditions of understanding since the computer and the program are functioning, and there is no understanding. But does it even provide a necessary condition or a significant contribution to understanding? One of the claims made by the supporters of strong AI is that when I understand a story in English, what I am doing is exactly the same or perhaps more of the same as what I was doing in manipulating the Chinese symbols. It is simply more formal symbol manipulation that distinguishes the case in English, where I do understand, from the case in Chinese, where I don't. I have not demonstrated that this claim is false, but it would certainly appear an incredible claim in the example. Such plausibility as the claim has derives from the supposition that we can construct a program that will have the same inputs and outputs as native speakers, and in addition we assume that speakers have some level of description where they are also instantiations of a program. On the basis of these two assumptions we assume that even if Shank's program isn't the whole story about understanding, it may be part of the story. Well, I suppose that is an empirical possibility, but not the slightest reason has so far been given to believe that it is true, since what is suggested, though certainly not demonstrated by the example is that the computer program is simply irrelevant to my understanding of the story. In the Chinese case I have everything that artificial intelligence can put into me by way of a program, and I understand nothing, in the English case I understand everything, and there is so far no reason at all to suppose that my understanding has anything to do with computer programs, that is, with computational operations on purely formally specified elements. As long as the program is defined in terms of computational operations on purely formally defined elements, what the example suggests is that these by themselves have no interesting connection with understanding. They are certainly not sufficient conditions, and not the slightest reason has been given to suppose that they are necessary conditions or even that they make a significant contribution to understanding. Notice that the force of the argument is not simply that different machines can have the same input and output while operating on different formal principles that is not the point at all. Rather, whatever purely formal principles you put into the computer, they will not be sufficient for understanding, since a human will be able to follow the formal principles without understanding anything. No reason whatever has been offered to suppose that such principles are necessary or even contributory, since no reason has been given to suppose that when I understand English I am operating with any formal program at all. Well, then, what is it that I have in the case of the English sentences that I do not have in the case of the Chinese sentences? The obvious answer is that I know what the former mean, while I haven't the faintest idea what the latter mean. But in what does this consist and why couldn't we give it to a machine, whatever it is? I will return to this question later, but first I want to continue with the example. I have had the occasions to present this example to several workers in artificial intelligence, and, interestingly, they do not seem to agree on what the proper reply to it is. I get a surprising variety of replies, and in what follows I will consider the most common of these, specified along with their geographic origins. But first I want to block some common misunderstandings about understanding, in many of these discussions one finds a lot of fancy footwork about the word, understanding. My critics point out that there are many different degrees of understanding, that understanding, is not a simple two-place predicate, that there are even different kinds and levels of understanding, and often the law of excluded middle doesn't even apply in a straightforward way to statements of the form, X understands Y that in many cases it is a matter for decision and not a simple matter of fact whether X understands Y, and so on. To all of these points I want to say, of course, of course. But they have nothing to do with the points at issue. There are clear cases in which understanding literally applies and clear cases in which it does not apply, and these two sorts of cases are all I need for this argument. Two I understand stories in English, to a lesser degree I can understand stories in French, to a still lesser degree, stories in German, and in Chinese, not at all. My car and my adding machine, on the other hand, understand nothing, they are not in that line of business. We often attribute, understanding, and other cognitive predicates by metaphor and analogy to cars, adding machines, and other artifacts, but nothing is proved by such attributions. We say, the door knows when to open because of its photoelectric cell, the adding machine knows how, understands how, 
is able to do addition and subtraction but not division, and the thermostat perceives chances in the temperature. The reason we make these attributions is quite interesting, and it has to do with the fact that in artifacts we extend our own intentionality. Three are tools or extensions of our purposes, and so we find it natural to make metaphorical attributions of intentionality to them, but I take it no philosophical ice is cut by such examples. The sense in which an automatic door understands instructions from its photoelectric cell is not at all the sense in which I understand English. If the sense in which Shanks programmed computers understand stories is supposed to be the metaphorical sense in which the door understands, and not the sense in which I understand English, the issue would not be worth discussing. But Newell and Simon, 1963, write that the kind of cognition they claim for computers is exactly the same as for human beings. I like the straightforwardness of this claim, and it is the sort of claim I will be considering. I will argue that in the literal sense the programmed computer understands what the car and the adding machine understand, namely, exactly nothing. The computer understanding is not just like my understanding of German, partial or incomplete, it is zero. Now to the replies. I the systems reply, Berkeley. While it is true that the individual person who is locked in the room does not understand the story, the fact is that he is merely part of a whole system, and the system does understand the story. The person has a large ledger in front of him in which are written the rules, he has a lot of scratch paper and pencils for doing calculations, he has databanks of sets of Chinese symbols. Now, understanding is not being ascribed to the mere individual, rather it is being ascribed to this whole system of which he is a part. My response to the systems theory is quite simple. Let the individual internalize all of these elements of the system. He memorizes the rules in the ledger and the databanks of Chinese symbols, and he does all the calculations in his head. The individual then incorporates the entire system. There isn't anything at all to the system that he does not encompass. We can even get rid of the room and suppose he works outdoors. All the same, he understands nothing of the Chinese, and a fortiori neither does the system, because there isn't anything in the system that isn't in him. If he doesn't understand, then there is no way the system could understand because the system is just a part of him. Actually I feel somewhat embarrassed to give even this answer to the systems theory because the theory seems to me so implausible to start with. The idea is that while a person doesn't understand Chinese, somehow the conjunction of that person and bits of paper might understand Chinese. It is not easy for me to imagine how someone who was not in the grip of an ideology would find the idea at all plausible. Still, I think many people who are committed to the ideology of strong AI will in the end be inclined to say something very much like this, so let us pursue it a bit further. According to one version of this view, while the man in the internalized systems example doesn't understand Chinese in the sense that a native Chinese speaker does, because, for example, he doesn't know that the story refers to restaurants and hamburgers, etc., still, the man is a formal symbol manipulation system, really does understand Chinese. The subsystem of the man that is the formal symbol manipulation system for Chinese should not be confused with the subsystem for English. So there are really two subsystems in the man. One understands English, the other Chinese, and, it's just that the two systems have little to do with each other. But, I want to reply, not only do they have little to do with each other, they are not even remotely alike. The subsystem that understands English, assuming we allow ourselves to talk in this jargon of subsystems, for a moment, knows that the stories are about restaurants and eating hamburgers, he knows that he is being asked questions about restaurants and that he is answering questions as best he can by making various inferences from the content of the story, and so on. But the Chinese system knows none of this. Whereas the English subsystem knows that, hamburgers, refers to hamburgers, the Chinese subsystem knows only that, squiggle squiggle, is followed by, squaggle squaggle. All he knows is that various formal symbols are being introduced at one end and manipulated according to rules written in English, and other symbols are going out at the other end. The whole point of the original example was to argue that such symbol manipulation by itself couldn't be sufficient for understanding Chinese in any literal sense because the man could write, squaggle squaggle, after, squiggle squiggle, without understanding anything in Chinese. And it doesn't meet that argument to postulate subsystems within the man, because the subsystems are no better off than the man was in the first place.
they still don't have anything even remotely like what the English-speaking man, or subsystem, has. Indeed, in the cases described, the Chinese subsystem is simply a part of the English subsystem, a part that engages in meaningless symbol manipulation according to rules in English. Let us ask ourselves what is supposed to motivate the system's reply in the first place. That is, what independent grounds are there supposed to be for saying that the agent must have a subsystem within him that literally understands stories in Chinese? As far as I can tell the only grounds are that in the example I have the same input and output as native Chinese speakers and a program that goes from one to the other. But the whole point of the examples has been to try to show that that couldn't be sufficient for understanding, in the sense in which I understand stories in English, because a person, and hence the set of systems that go to make up a person, could have the right combination of input, output, and program and still not understand anything in the relevant literal sense in which I understand English. The only motivation for saying there must be a subsystem in me that understands Chinese is that I have a program and I can pass the Turing test, I can fool native Chinese speakers. But precisely one of the points at issue is the adequacy of the Turing test. The example shows that there could be two, systems, both of which pass the Turing test, but only one of which understands, and it is no argument against this point to say that since they both pass the Turing test they must both understand, since this claim fails to meet the argument that the system in me that understands English has a great deal more than the system that merely processes Chinese. In short, the system's reply simply begs the question by insisting without argument that the system must understand Chinese. Furthermore, the system's reply would appear to lead to consequences that are independently absurd. If we are to conclude that there must be cognition in me on the grounds that I have a certain sort of input and output and a program in between, then it looks like all sorts of non-cognitive subsystems are going to turn out to be cognitive. For example, there is a level of description at which my stomach does information processing, and it instantiates any number of computer programs, but I take it we do not want to say that it has any understanding, cf. Pilishin, Computation and Cognition, BBS 3-1-1980. But if we accept the system's reply, then it is hard to see how we avoid saying that stomach, heart, liver, and so on, are all understanding subsystems, since there is no principled way to distinguish the motivation for saying the Chinese subsystem understands from saying that the stomach understands. It is, by the way, not an answer to this point to say that the Chinese system has information as input and output and the stomach has food and food products as input and output, since from the point of view of the agent, from my point of view, there is no information in either the food or the Chinese the Chinese is just so many meaningless squiggles. The information in the Chinese case is solely in the eyes of the programmers and the interpreters, and there is nothing to prevent them from treating the input and output of my digestive organs as information if they so desire. This last point bears on some independent problems in strong AI, and it is worth digressing for a moment to explain it. If strong AI is to be a branch of psychology, then it must be able to distinguish those systems that are genuinely mental from those that are not. It must be able to distinguish the principles on which the mind works from those on which non-mental systems work. Otherwise it will offer us no explanations of what is specifically mental about the mental. And the mental-non-mental distinction cannot be just in the eye of the beholder but it must be intrinsic to the systems. Otherwise it would be up to any beholder to treat people as non-mental and, for example, hurricanes as mental if he likes. But quite often in the AI literature the distinction is blurred in ways that would in the long run prove disastrous to the claim that I is a cognitive inquiry. McCarthy, for example, writes, machines as simple as thermostats can be said to have beliefs, and having beliefs seems to be a characteristic of most machines capable of problem-solving performance, McCarthy 1979. Anyone who thinks strong AI has a chance as a theory of the mind ought to ponder the implications of that remark. We are asked to accept it as a discovery of strong AI that the hunk of metal on the wall that we use to regulate the temperature has beliefs in exactly the same sense that we, our spouses, and our children have beliefs, and furthermore that, most of the other machines in the room telephone, tape recorder, adding machine, electric light switch, also have beliefs in this literal sense. It is not the aim of this article to argue against McCarthy's point, so I will simply assert the following without argument. The study of the mind starts with such facts as that humans have beliefs, 
while thermostats, telephones, and adding machines don't. If you get a theory that denies this point you have produced a counterexample to the theory and the theory is false. One gets the impression that people in AI who write this sort of thing think they can get away with it because they don't really take it seriously, and they don't think anyone else will either. I propose for a moment at least, to take it seriously. Think hard for one minute about what would be necessary to establish that that hunk of metal on the wall over there had real beliefs. Beliefs with direction of fit, propositional content, and conditions of satisfaction. Beliefs that had the possibility of being strong beliefs or weak beliefs. Nervous, anxious, or secure beliefs. Dogmatic, rational, or superstitious beliefs. Blind faiths or hesitant cogitations. Any kind of beliefs. The thermostat is not a candidate. Neither a stomach, liver, adding machine, or telephone. However, since we are taking the idea seriously, notice that its truth would be fatal to strong AI's claim to be a science of the mind. For now the mind is everywhere. What we wanted to know is what distinguishes the mind from thermostats and livers. And if McCarthy were right, strong AI wouldn't have a hope of telling us that. 2. The robot reply, Yale. Suppose we wrote a different kind of program from Shank's program. Suppose we put a computer inside a robot, and this computer would not just take in formal symbols as input and give out formal symbols as output, but rather would actually operate the robot in such a way that the robot does something very much like perceiving, walking, moving about, hammering nails, eating, drinking anything you like. The robot would, for example, have a television camera attached to it that enabled it to see, it would have arms and legs that enabled it to act, and all of this would be controlled by its computer brain. Such a robot would, unlike Shank's computer, have genuine understanding and other mental states. The first thing to notice about the robot reply is that it tacitly concedes that cognition is not solely a matter of formal symbol manipulation, since this reply adds a set of causal relation with the outside world, cf. Fodor, Methodological Solipsism, BBS 3.1.1980. But the answer to the robot reply is that the addition of such perceptual and motor capacities adds nothing by way of understanding, in particular, or intentionality, in general, to Shank's original program. To see this, notice that the same thought experiment applies to the robot case. Suppose that instead of the computer inside the robot, you put me inside the room and, as in the original Chinese case, you give me more Chinese symbols with more instructions in English for matching Chinese symbols to Chinese symbols and feeding back Chinese symbols to the outside. Suppose, unknown to me, some of the Chinese symbols that come to me come from a television camera attached to the robot and other Chinese symbols that I am giving out serve to make the motors inside the robot move the robot's legs or arms. It is important to emphasize that all I am doing is manipulating formal symbols. I know none of these other facts. I am receiving information from the robot's perceptual apparatus, and I am giving out instructions to its motor apparatus without knowing either of these facts. I am the robot's homunculus, but unlike the traditional homunculus, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand anything except the rules for symbol manipulation. Now in this case I want to say that the robot has no intentional states at all. It is simply moving about as a result of its electrical wiring and its program. And furthermore, by instantiating the program I have no intentional states of the relevant type. All I do is follow formal instructions about manipulating formal symbols. 3. The Brain Simulator Reply, Berkeley and MIT. Suppose we design a program that doesn't represent information that we have about the world, such as the information in Shank's scripts, but simulates the actual sequence of neuron firings at the synapses of the brain of a native Chinese speaker when he understands stories in Chinese and gives answers to them. The machine takes in Chinese stories and questions about them as input, it simulates the formal structure of actual Chinese brains in processing these stories, and it gives out Chinese answers as outputs. We can even imagine that the machine operates, not with a single serial program, but with a whole set of programs operating in parallel, in the manner that actual human brains presumably operate when they process natural language. Now surely in such a case we would have to say that the machine understood the stories, and if we refuse to say that, wouldn't we also have to deny that native Chinese speakers understood the stories? 
At the level of the synapses, what would or could be different about the program of the computer and the program of the Chinese brain? Before countering this reply I want to digress to note that it is an odd reply for any partisan of artificial intelligence, or functionalism, etc. To make, I thought the whole idea of strong AI is that we don't need to know how the brain works to know how the mind works. The basic hypothesis, or so I had supposed, was that there is a level of mental operations consisting of computational processes over formal elements that constitute the essence of the mental and can be realized in all sorts of different brain processes, in the same way that any computer program can be realized in different computer hardwares. On the assumptions of strong AI, the mind is to the brain as the program is to the hardware, and thus we can understand the mind without doing neurophysiology. If we had to know how the brain worked to do AI, we wouldn't bother with AI. However, even getting this close to the operation of the brain is still not sufficient to produce understanding. To see this, imagine that instead of a monolingual man in a room shuffling symbols we have the man operate an elaborate set of water pipes with valves connecting them. When the man receives the Chinese symbols, he looks up in the program, written in English, which valves he has to turn on and off. Each water connection corresponds to a synapse in the Chinese brain, and the whole system is rigged up so that after doing all the right firings, that is after turning on all the right faucets, the Chinese answers pop out at the output end of the series of pipes. Now where is the understanding in this system? It takes Chinese as input, it simulates the formal structure of the synapses of the Chinese brain, and it gives Chinese as output. But the man certainly doesn't understand Chinese, and neither do the water pipes, and if we are tempted to adopt what I think is the absurd view that somehow the conjunction of man and water pipes understands. Remember that in principle the man can internalize the formal structure of the water pipes and do all the neuron firings in his imagination. The problem with the brain simulator is that it is simulating the wrong things about the brain. As long as it simulates only the formal structure of the sequence of neuron firings at the synapses, it won't have simulated what matters about the brain, namely its causal properties, its ability to produce intentional states. And that the formal properties are not sufficient for the causal properties as shown by the water pipe example. We can have all the formal properties carved off from the relevant neurobiological causal properties. IV. The combination reply, Berkeley and Stanford. While each of the previous three replies might not be completely convincing by itself as a refutation of the Chinese room counterexample, if you take all three together they are collectively much more convincing and even decisive. Imagine a robot with a brain-shaped computer lodged in its cranial cavity. Imagine the computer programmed with all the synapses of a human brain. Imagine the whole behavior of the robot as indistinguishable from human behavior, and now think of the whole thing as a unified system and not just as a computer with inputs and outputs. Surely in such a case we would have to ascribe intentionality to the system. I entirely agree that in such a case we would find it rational and indeed irresistible to accept the hypothesis that the robot had intentionality, as long as we knew nothing more about it. Indeed, besides appearance and behavior, the other elements of the combination are really irrelevant. If we could build a robot whose behavior was indistinguishable over a large range from human behavior, we would attribute intentionality to it, pending some reason not to. We wouldn't need to know in advance that its computer brain was a formal analog of the human brain. But I really don't see that this is any help to the claims of strong AI. And here's why. According to strong AI, instantiating a formal program with the right input and output is a sufficient condition of, indeed as constitutive of, intentionality. As Newell, 1979, puts it, the essence of the mental is the operation of a physical symbol system. But the attributions of intentionality that we make to the robot in this example have nothing to do with formal programs. They are simply based on the assumption that if the robot looks and behaves sufficiently like us, then we would suppose, until proven otherwise, that it must have mental states like ours that cause and are expressed by its behavior and it must have an inner mechanism capable of producing such mental states. If we knew independently how to account for its behavior without such assumptions we would not attribute intentionality to it especially if we knew it had a formal program. And this is precisely the point of my earlier reply to Objection 2. 
Suppose we knew that the robot's behavior was entirely accounted for by the fact that a man inside it was receiving uninterpreted formal symbols from the robot's sensory receptors and sending out uninterpreted formal symbols to its motor mechanisms, and the man was doing this symbol manipulation in accordance with a bunch of rules. Furthermore, suppose the man knows none of these facts about the robot, all he knows is which operations to perform on which meaningless symbols. In such a case we would regard the robot as an ingenious mechanical dummy. The hypothesis that the dummy has a mind would now be unwarranted and unnecessary, for there is now no longer any reason to ascribe intentionality to the robot or to the system of which it is a part, except of course for the man's intentionality in manipulating the symbols. The formal symbol manipulations go on, the input and output are correctly matched, but the only real locus of intentionality is the man, and he doesn't know any of the relevant intentional states. He doesn't, for example, see what comes into the robot's eyes, he doesn't intend to move the robot's arm, and he doesn't understand any of the remarks made to or by the robot. Nor, for the reasons stated earlier, does the system of which man and robot are a part. To see this point, contrast this case with cases in which we find it completely natural to ascribe intentionality to members of certain other primate species such as apes and monkeys and to domestic animals such as dogs. The reasons we find it natural are, roughly, 2. We can't make sense of the animal's behavior without the ascription of intentionality, and we can see that the beasts are made of similar stuff to ourselves that is an eye, that a nose, this is its skin, and so on. Given the coherence of the animal's behavior and the assumption of the same causal stuff underlying it, we assume both that the animal must have mental states underlying its behavior, and that the mental states must be produced by mechanisms made out of the stuff that is like our stuff. We would certainly make similar assumptions about the robot unless we had some reason not to, but as soon as we knew that the behavior was the result of a formal program, and that the actual causal properties of the physical substance were irrelevant we would abandon the assumption of intentionality. See, Cognition and Consciousness in Non-Human Species, BBS 141978. There are two other responses to my example that come up frequently, and so are worth discussing, but really miss the point. V. The other minds reply, Yale. How do you know that other people understand Chinese or anything else? Only by their behavior. Now the computer can pass the behavioral tests as well as they can, in principle. So if you are going to attribute cognition to other people you must in principle also attribute it to computers. This objection really is only worth a short reply. The problem in this discussion is not about how I know that other. People have cognitive states, but rather what it is that I am. Attributing to them when I attribute cognitive states to them. The thrust of the argument is that it couldn't be just computational processes in their output because the computational processes in their output can exist without the cognitive state. It is no answer to this argument to feign anesthesia. In, cognitive sciences, one presupposes the reality and knowability of the mental in the same way that in physical sciences one has to presuppose the reality and knowability of physical objects. V. The many mansions reply, Berkeley. Your whole argument presupposes that AI is only about analog and digital computers. But that just happens to be the present state of technology. Whatever these causal processes are that you say are essential for intentionality, assuming you are right, eventually we will be able to build devices that have these causal processes, and that will be artificial intelligence. So your arguments are in no way directed at the ability of artificial intelligence to produce and explain cognition. I really have no objection to this reply save to say that it in effect trivializes the project of strong AI by redefining it as whatever artificially produces and explains cognition. The interest of the original claim made on behalf of artificial intelligence is that it was a precise, well-defined thesis. Mental processes are computational processes over formally defined elements. I have been concerned to challenge that thesis. If the claim is redefined so that it is no longer that thesis, my objections no longer apply because there is no longer a testable hypothesis for them to apply to. Let us now return to the question I promised I would try to answer. Granted that in my original example I understand the English and I do not understand the Chinese, and granted therefore that the machine doesn't understand either English or Chinese, still there must be something about me that makes it the case that I understand English and a corresponding something lacking in me that makes it the case that I fail to understand Chinese.
Now why couldn't we give those somethings, whatever they are, to a machine? I see no reason in principle why we couldn't give a machine the capacity to understand English or Chinese, since in an important sense our bodies with our brains are precisely such machines. But I do see very strong arguments for saying that we could not give such a thing to a machine where the operation of the machine is defined solely in terms of computational processes over formally defined elements. That is, where the operation of the machine is defined as an instantiation of a computer program. It is not because I am the instantiation of a computer program that I am able to understand English and have other forms of intentionality. I am, I suppose, the instantiation of any number of computer programs, but as far as we know it is because I am a certain sort of organism with a certain biological, i.e. chemical and physical, structure, and this structure, under certain conditions, is causally capable of producing perception, action, understanding, learning, and other intentional phenomena. And part of the point of the present argument is that only something that had those causal powers could have that intentionality. Perhaps other physical and chemical processes could produce exactly these effects. Perhaps, for example, Martians also have intentionality but their brains are made of different stuff. That is an empirical question, rather like the question whether photosynthesis can be done by something with a chemistry different from that of chlorophyll. But the main point of the present argument is that no purely formal model will ever be sufficient by itself for intentionality because the formal properties are not by themselves constitutive of intentionality, and they have by themselves no causal powers except the power, when instantiated, to produce the next stage of the formalism when the machine is running. And any other causal properties that particular realizations of the formal model have, are irrelevant to the formal model because we can always put the same formal model in a different realization where those causal properties are obviously absent. Even if, by some miracle, Chinese speakers exactly realize Shank's program, we can put the same program in English speakers, water pipes, or computers, none of which understand Chinese, the program notwithstanding. What matters about brain operations is not the formal shadow cast by the sequence of synapses but rather the actual properties of the sequences. All the arguments for the strong version of artificial intelligence that I have seen insist on drawing an outline around the shadows cast by cognition and then claiming that the shadows are the real thing. By way of concluding I want to try to state some of the general philosophical points implicit in the argument. For clarity I will try to do it in a question and answer fashion, and I begin with that old chestnut of a question. Could a machine think? The answer is, obviously, yes. We are precisely such machines. Yes, but could an artifact, a man-made machine, think? Assuming it is possible to produce artificially a machine with a nervous system, neurons with axons and dendrites, and all the rest of it, sufficiently like ours, again the answer to the question seems to be obviously, yes. If you can exactly duplicate the causes, you could duplicate the effects. And indeed it might be possible to produce consciousness, intentionality, and all the rest of it using some other sorts of chemical principles than those that human beings use. It is, as I said, an empirical question. Okay, but could a digital computer think? If by digital computer, we mean anything at all that has a level of description where it can correctly be described as the instantiation of a computer program, then again the answer is, of course, yes, since we are the instantiations of any number of computer programs, and we can think. But could something think, understand, and so on solely in virtue of being a computer with the right sort of program? Could instantiating a program, the right program of course, by itself be a sufficient condition of understanding? This I think is the right question to ask, though it is usually confused with one or more of the earlier questions, and the answer to it is no. Why not? Because the formal symbol manipulations by themselves don't have any intentionality. They are quite meaningless, they aren't even symbol manipulations, since the symbols don't symbolize anything. In linguistic jargon, they have only a syntax but no semantics. Such intentionality as computers appear to have is solely in the minds of those who program them and those who use them, those who send in the input and those who interpret the output. The aim of the Chinese room example was to try to show this by showing that as soon as we put something into the system that really does have intentionality, a man, and we program him with the formal program, you can see that the formal program carries no additional intentionality.
It adds nothing, for example, to a man's ability to understand Chinese. Precisely that feature of AI that seems so appealing the distinction between the program and the realization proves fatal to the claim that simulation could be duplication. The distinction between the program and its realization in the hardware seems to be parallel to the distinction between the level of mental operations and the level of brain operations. And if we could describe the level of mental operations as a formal program, then it seems we could describe what was essential about the mind without doing either introspective psychology or neurophysiology of the brain. But the equation, mind is to brain as program is to hardware, breaks down at several points, among them the following three. First, the distinction between program and realization has the consequence that the same program could have all sorts of crazy realizations that had no form of intentionality. Weizenbaum, 1976, ch. 2, for example, shows in detail how to construct a computer using a roll of toilet paper and a pile of small stones. Similarly, the Chinese story understanding program can be programmed into a sequence of water pipes, a set of wind machines, or a monolingual English speaker, none of which thereby acquires an understanding of Chinese. Stones, toilet paper, wind, and water pipes are the wrong kind of stuff to have intentionality in the first place only something that has the same causal powers as brains can have intentionality and though the English speaker has the right kind of stuff for intentionality you can easily see that he doesn't get any extra intentionality by memorizing the program, since memorizing it won't teach him Chinese. Second, the program is purely formal, but the intentional states are not in that way formal. They are defined in terms of their content, not their form. The belief that it is raining, for example, is not defined as a certain formal shape but as a certain mental content with conditions of satisfaction, a direction of fit, see Searle 1979, and the like. Indeed the belief as such hasn't even got a formal shape in the syntactic sense, since one and the same belief can be given an indefinite number of different syntactic expressions in different linguistic systems. Third, as I mentioned before, mental states and events are literally a product of the operation of the brain, but the program is not in that way a product of the computer. Well if programs are in no way constitutive of mental processes, why have so many people believed the converse? That at least needs some explanation. I don't really know the answer to that one. The idea that computer simulations could be the real thing ought to have seemed suspicious in the first place because the computer isn't confined to simulating mental operations, by any means. No one supposes that computer simulations of a five-alarm fire will burn the neighborhood down or that a computer simulation of a rainstorm will leave us all drenched. Why on earth would anyone suppose that a computer simulation of understanding actually understood anything? It is sometimes said that it would be frightfully hard to get computers to feel pain or fall in love but love and pain are neither harder nor easier than cognition or anything else. For simulation, all you need is the right input and output and a program in the middle that transforms the former into the latter. That is all the computer has for anything it does. To confuse simulation with duplication is the same mistake, whether it is pain, love, cognition, fires, or rainstorms. Still, there are several reasons why AI must have seemed, and to many people perhaps still to seem in some way to reproduce and thereby explain mental phenomena and I believe we will not succeed in removing these illusions until we have fully exposed the reasons that give rise to them. First, and perhaps most important, is a confusion about the notion of information processing. Many people in cognitive science believe that the human brain, with its mind, does something called information processing, and analogously the computer with its program does information processing. But fires and rainstorms, on the other hand, don't do information processing at all. Thus, though the computer can simulate the formal features of any process whatever, it stands in a special relation to the mind and brain because when the computer is properly programmed, ideally with the same program as the brain, the information processing is identical in the two cases, and this information processing is really the essence of the mental. But the trouble with this argument is that it rests on an ambiguity in the notion of information. In the sense in which people process information, when they reflect, say, on problems in arithmetic or when they read and answer questions about stories, the programmed computer does not do information processing. Rather, what it does is manipulate formal symbols. 
The fact that the programmer and the interpreter of the computer output use the symbols to stand for objects in the world is totally beyond the scope of the computer. The computer, to repeat, has a syntax but no semantics. Thus, if you type into the computer, 2 plus 2 equals? It will type out, 4. But it has no idea that, 4, means 4 or that it means anything at all. And the point is not that it lacks some second-order information about the interpretation of its first-order symbols, but rather that its first-order symbols don't have any interpretations as far as the computer is concerned. All the computer has is more symbols. The introduction of the notion of information processing, therefore produces a dilemma. Either we construe the notion of information processing in such a way that it implies intentionality as part of the process or we don't. If the former, then the programmed computer does not do information processing, it only manipulates formal symbols. If the latter, then, though the computer does information processing, it is only doing so in a sense in which adding machines, typewriters, stomachs, thermostats, rainstorms, and hurricanes do information processing. Namely, they have a level of description at which we can describe them as taking information in at one end, transforming it, and producing information as output. But in this case it is up to outside observers to interpret the input and output as information in the ordinary sense. And no similarity is established between the computer and the brain in terms of any similarity of information processing. Second, in much of AI there is a residual behaviorism or operationalism. Since appropriately programmed computers can have input-output patterns similar to those of human beings, we are tempted to postulate mental states in the computer similar to human mental states. But once we see that it is both conceptually and empirically possible for a system to have human capacities in some realm without having any intentionality at all, we should be able to overcome this impulse. My desk adding machine has calculating capacities, but no intentionality, and in this paper I have tried to show that a system could have input and output capabilities that duplicated those of a native Chinese speaker and still not understand Chinese, regardless of how it was programmed. The Turing test is typical of the tradition in being unashamedly behavioristic and operationalistic, and I believe that if AI workers totally repudiated behaviorism and operationalism much of the confusion between simulation and duplication would be eliminated. Third, this residual operationalism is joined to a residual form of dualism. Indeed strong AI only makes sense given the dualistic assumption that, where the mind is concerned, the brain doesn't matter. In strong AI, and in functionalism, as well, what matters are programs, and programs are independent of their realization in machines. Indeed, as far as AI is concerned, the same program could be realized by an electronic machine, a Cartesian mental substance, or a Hegelian world spirit. The single most surprising discovery that I have made in discussing these issues is that many AI workers are quite shocked by my idea that actual human mental phenomena might be dependent on actual physical chemical properties of actual human brains. But if you think about it a minute you can see that I should not have been surprised, for unless you accept some form of dualism, the strong AI project hasn't got a chance. The project is to reproduce and explain the mental by designing programs, but unless the mind is not only conceptually but empirically independent of the brain you couldn't carry out the project. For the program is completely independent of any realization. Unless you believe that the mind is separable from the brain both conceptually and empirically dualism in a strong form you cannot hope to reproduce the mental by writing and running programs since programs must be independent of brains or any other particular forms of instantiation. If mental operations consist in computational operations on formal symbols, then it follows that they have no interesting connection with the brain. The only connection would be that the brain just happens to be one of the indefinitely many types of machines capable of instantiating the program. This form of dualism is not the traditional Cartesian variety that claims there are two sorts of substances, but it is Cartesian in the sense that it insists that what is specifically mental about the mind has no intrinsic connection with the actual properties of the brain. This underlying dualism is masked from us by the fact that AI literature contains frequent fulminations against dualism. What the authors seem to be unaware of is that their position presupposes a strong version of dualism. Could a machine think? My own view is that only a machine could think, and indeed only very special kinds of machines namely brains and machines that had the same causal powers as brains.
And that is the main reason strong AI has had little to tell us about thinking, since it has nothing to tell us about machines. By its own definition, it is about programs, and programs are not machines. Whatever else intentionality is, it is a biological phenomenon, and it is as likely to be as causally dependent on the specific biochemistry of its origins as lactation, photosynthesis, or any other biological phenomena. No one would suppose that we could produce milk and sugar by running a computer simulation of the formal sequences in lactation and photosynthesis, but where the mind is concerned many people are willing to believe in such a miracle because of a deep and abiding dualism. The mind they suppose is a matter of formal processes and is independent of quite specific material causes in the way that milk and sugar are not. In defense of this dualism the hope is often expressed that the brain is a digital computer, early computers, by the way, were often called, electronic brains. But that is no help. Of course the brain is a digital computer. Since everything is a digital computer, brains are too. The point is that the brain's causal capacity to produce intentionality cannot consist in its instantiating a computer program, since for any program you like it is possible for something to instantiate that program and still not have any mental states. Whatever it is that the brain does to produce intentionality, it cannot consist in instantiating a program since no program, by itself, is sufficient for intentionality. Acknowledgements. I am indebted to a rather large number of people for discussion of these matters and for their patient attempts to overcome my ignorance of artificial intelligence. I would especially like to thank Ned Block, Hubert Dreyfus, John Hogland, Roger Shank, Robert Walensky, and Terry Winograd. Notes. 1. I am not, of course, saying that Shank himself is committed to these claims. 2. Also, understanding implies both the possession of mental, intentional, states and the truth, validity, success, of these states. For the purposes of this discussion we are concerned only with the possession of the states. 3. Intentionality is by definition that feature of certain mental states by which they are directed at or about objects and states of affairs in the world. Thus, beliefs, desires, and intentions are. Intentional states. Undirected forms of anxiety and depression are not. For further discussion see Searle, 1979c. Open peer commentary. Commentary submitted by the qualified professional readership of this journal will be considered for publication in a later issue as continuing commentary on this article. By Robert P. Abelson. Department of Psychology, Yale University. New Haven. Con. 06520. Sorrell's argument is just a set of Chinese symbols. Sorrell claims that the apparently commonsensical programs of the Yale AI project really don't display meaningful understanding of text. For him, the computer processing a story about a restaurant visit is just a Chinese symbol manipulator blindly applying uncomprehended rules to uncomprehended text. What is missing, Searle says, is the presence of intentional states. Searle is misguided in this criticism in at least two ways. First of all, it is no trivial matter to write rules to transform the Chinese symbols of a story text into the Chinese symbols of appropriate answers to questions about the story. To dismiss this programming feat as mere rule-mongering is like downgrading a good piece of literature as something that British museum monkeys can eventually produce. The programmer needs a very crisp understanding of the real work to write the appropriate rules. Mediocre rules produce feeble-minded output, and have to be rewritten. As rules are sharpened, the output gets more and more convincing, so that the process of rule development is convergent. This is a characteristic of the understanding of a content area, not of blind exercise within it. Ah, but Searle would say that such understanding is in the programmer and not in the computer. Well, yes, but what's the issue? Most precisely, the understanding is in the programmer's rule set, which the computer exercises. No one I know of, at Yale, at least, has claimed autonomy for the computer. The computer is not even necessary to the representational theory. It is just very, very convenient and very, very vivid. But just suppose that we wanted to claim that the computer itself understood the story content. How could such a claim be defended? given that the computer is merely crunching away on statements in program code and producing other statements in program code which, following translation, are applauded by outside observers as being correct and perhaps even clever. 
What kind of understanding is that? It is, I would assert, very much the kind of understanding that people display in exposure to new content via language or other symbol systems. When a child learns to add, what does he do except apply rules? Where does understanding enter? Is it understanding that the results of addition apply independent of content, so that m plus np means that if you have m things and you assemble them with n things, then you'll have p things? But that's a rule, too. Is it understanding that the units place can be translated into pennies, the tens place into dimes, and the hundreds place into dollars, so that additions of numbers are isomorphic with additions of money? But that's a rule connecting rule systems. In general, it seems that as more and more rules about a given content are incorporated, especially if they connect with other content domains, we have a sense that understanding is increasing. At what point does a person graduate from merely manipulating rules to really understanding? Educationists would love to know, and so would I, but I would be willing to bet that by the Chinese symbol test, most of the people reading this don't really understand the transcendental number E, or economic inflation, or nuclear power plant safety, or how sailboats can sail upwind. Be honest with yourself. Sorrel's agreement itself, sallying forth as it does into a symbol-laden domain that is intrinsically difficult to understand, could well be seen as mere symbol manipulation. His main rule is that if you see the Chinese symbols for formal computational operations, then you output the Chinese symbols for no understanding at all. Given the very common exercise in human affairs of linguistic interchange in areas where it is not demonstrable that we know what we are talking about, we might well be humble and give the computer the benefit of the doubt when and if it performs as well as we do. If we credit people with understanding by virtue of their apparently competent verbal performances, we might extend the same courtesy to the machine. It is a conceit, not an insight, to give ourselves more credit for a comparable performance. But Searle airily dismisses this other mind's argument, and still insists that the computer lacks something essential. Chinese symbol rules only go so far, and for him, if you don't have everything, you don't have anything. I should think rather that if you don't have everything, you don't have everything. But in any case, the missing ingredient for Searle is his concept of intentionality. In his paper, he does not justify why this is the key factor. It seems more obvious that what the manipulator of Chinese symbols misses is extensional validity. Not to know that the symbol for menu refers to that thing out in the world that you can hold and fold and look at closely is to miss some real understanding of what is meant by menu. I readily acknowledge the importance of such sensorimotor knowledge. The understanding of how a sailboat sails upwind gain through the feel of sail and rudder is certainly valid, and is not the same as a verbal explanation. Verbal conceptual computer programs lacking sensorimotor connection with the world may well miss things. Imagine the following piece of a story. John told Harry he couldn't find the book. Harry rolled his eyes toward the ceiling. Present common sense inference models can make various predictions about Harry's relation to the book and its unfindability. Perhaps he loaned it to John, and therefore would be upset that it seemed lost. But the unique and non-decomposable meaning of eye-rolling is hard for a model to capture except by a clumsy, concrete dictionary entry. A human understander, on the other hand, can imitate Harry's eye-roll overtly or in imagination and experience holistically the resigned frustration that Harry must feel. It is important to explore the domain of examples like this. But why instead is intentionality so important for Searle? If we recite his litany, hopes, fears, and desires, we don't get the point. A computer or a human certainly need not have hopes or fears about the customer in order to understand a story about a restaurant visit. And inferential use of these concepts is well within the capabilities of computer understanding models. Goal-based inferences, for example, are a standard mechanism in programs of the Yale AL project. Rather, the crucial state of intentionality for knowledge is the appreciation of the conditions for its falsification. In what sense does the computer realize that the assertion, John read the menu, might or might not be true, and that there are ways in the real world to find out? Well, Searle has a point there, although I do not see it as the trump card he thinks he is playing. The computer operates in a gullible fashion. It takes every assertion to be true. 
There are thus certain knowledge problems that have not been considered in artificial intelligence programs for language understanding, for example, the question of what to do when a belief about the world is contradicted by data. Should the belief be modified, or the data called into question? These questions have been discussed by psychologists in the context of human knowledge handling proclivities, but the issues are beyond present AL capability. We shall have to see what happens in this area. The naivete of computers about the validity of what we tell them is perhaps touching, but it would hardly seem to justify the total scorn exhibited by Searle. There are many areas of knowledge within which questions of falsifiability are quite secondary the understanding of literary fiction, for example. Searle has not made convincing his case for the fundamental essentiality of intentionality in understanding. My Chinese symbol processor, at any rate, is not about to output the symbol for surrender. By Ned Block. Department of Linguistics and Philosophy, Massachusetts Institute OL Technology, Cambridge, Massachusetts. 02139. What intuitions about homunculi don't show Sorrell's argument depends for its force on intuitions that certain entities do not think. There are two simple objections to his argument that are based on general considerations about what can be shown by intuitions that something can't think. First, we are willing, and rightly so, to accept counterintuitive consequences of claims for which we have substantial evidence. It once seemed intuitively absurd to assert that the Earth was whirling through space at breakneck speed, but in the face of the evidence for the Copernican view, such an intuition should be, and eventually was, rejected as irrelevant to the truth of the matter. More relevantly, a grapefruit-sized head-enclosed blob of grey protoplasm seems, at least at first blush, a most implausible seat of mentality. But if your intuitions still balk at brains as seats of mentality, you should ignore your intuitions as irrelevant to the truth of the matter, given the remarkable evidence for the role of the brain in our mental life. Searle presents some alleged counterintuitive consequences of the view of cognition as formal symbol manipulation. But his argument does not even have the right form, for in order to know whether we should reject the doctrine because of its alleged counterintuitive consequences, we must know what sort of evidence there is in favor of the doctrine. If the evidence for the doctrine is overwhelming, then incompatible intuitions should be ignored, just as should intuitions that the brain couldn't be the seat of mentality. So Sorrell's argument has a missing premise to the effect that the evidence isn't sufficient to overrule the intuitions. Well, is such a missing premise true? I think that anyone who takes a good undergraduate cognitive psychology course would see enough evidence to justify tentatively disregarding intuitions of the sort that Searle appeals to. Many theories in the tradition of thinking as formal symbol manipulation have a moderate, though admittedly not overwhelming, degree of empirical support. A second point against Searle has to do with another aspect of the logic of appeals to intuition. At best, intuition reveals facts about our concepts, at worst, facts about a motley of factors such as our prejudices, ignorance, and, still worse, our lack of imagination is when people accepted the deliverance of intuition that two straight lines cannot cross twice. So even if we were to accept Sorrell's appeal to intuitions as showing that homunculus heads that formally manipulate symbols do not think, what this would show is that our formal symbol manipulation theories do not provide a sufficient condition for the application of our ordinary intentional concepts. The more interesting issue, however, is whether the homunculus head's formal symbol manipulation falls in the same scientific natural kind, see Putnam 1975a, as our intentional processes. If so, then the homunculus head does think in a reasonable scientific sense of the term and so much the worse for the ordinary concept. Moreover, if we are very concerned with ordinary intentional concepts, we can give sufficient conditions for their application by building in ad hoc conditions designed to rule out the putative counterexamples. A first stab, inadequate, but improvable see Putnam 1975b, page 435, block 1978, page 292, would be to add the condition that in order to think, realizations of the symbol manipulating system must not have operations mediated by entities that themselves have symbol manipulation typical of intentional systems. The ad hocness of such a condition is not an objection to it, given that what we are trying to do is, reconstruct, an everyday concept out of a scientific one.
we can expect the everyday concept to be scientifically characterizable only in an unnatural way. See Fedor's commentary on Searle, this issue. Finally, there is good reason for thinking that the Putnam-Kripke account of the semantics of thought, and other intentional terms is correct. If so, and if the formal symbol manipulation of the homunculus head falls in the same natural kind as our cognitive processes, then the homunculus head does think, in the ordinary sense as well as in the scientific sense of the term. The upshot of both these points is that the real crux of the debate rests on a matter that Searle does not so much as mention, what the evidence is for the formal symbol manipulation point of view. Recall that Searle's target is the doctrine that cognition is formal symbol manipulation, that is, manipulation of representations by mechanisms that take account only of the forms, shapes, of the representations. Formal symbol manipulation theories of cognition postulate a variety of mechanisms that generate, transform, and compare representations. Once one sees this doctrine as Sorrell's real target, one can simply ignore his objections to Shank. The idea that a machine programmed a la Shank has anything akin to mentality is not worth taking seriously, and casts as much doubt on the symbol manipulation theory of thought as Hitler casts on doctrine favoring a strong executive branch of government. Any plausibility attaching to the idea that a shank machine thinks would seem to derive from a crude Turing test version of behaviorism that is anathema to most who view cognition as formal symbol manipulation. 1. Consider a robot akin to the one sketched in Sorrell's reply to, omitting features that have to do with his criticism of shank. It simulates your input-output behavior by using a formal symbol manipulation theory of the sort just sketched of your cognitive processes, together with a theory of your non-cognitive mental processes, a qualification omitted from now on. Its body is like yours except that instead of a brain it has a computer equipped with a cognitive theory true of you. You receive an input. Who is your favorite philosopher? You cogitate a bit and reply, Heraclitus. If your robot doppelganger receives the same input, a mechanism converts the input into a description of the input. The computer uses its description of your cognitive mechanisms to deduce a description of the product of your cogitation. This description is then transmitted to a device that transforms the description into the noise, Heraclitus. While the robot just described behaves just as you would given any input, it is not obvious that it has any mental states. You cogitate in response to the question, but what goes on in the robot is manipulation of descriptions of your cogitation so as to produce the same response. It isn't obvious that the manipulation of descriptions of cogitation in this way is itself cogitation. My intuitions agree with Searle about this kind of case, see Block, forthcoming, but I have encountered little agreement on the matter. In the absence of widely shared intuition, I ask the reader to pretend to have sorrels in my intuition on this question. Now I ask another favor, one that should be firmly distinguished from the first. Take the leap from intuition to fact, a leap that, as I argued in the first four paragraphs of this commentary, Searle gives us no reason to take. Suppose, for the sake of argument, that the robot described above does not in fact have intentional states. What I want to point out is that even if we grant Searle all this, the doctrine that cognition is formal symbol manipulation remains utterly unscathed. For it is no part of the symbol manipulation view of cognition that the kind of manipulation attributed to descriptions of our symbol manipulating cognitive processes is itself a cognitive process. Those who believe formal symbol manipulation theories of intentionality must assign intentionality to anything of which the theories are true, but the theories cannot be expected to be true of devices that use them to mimic beings of which they are true. Thus far, I have pointed out that intuitions that Sorrell's sort of homunculus head does not think do not challenge the doctrine that thinking is formal symbol manipulation. But a variant of Sorrell's example, similar to his in its intuitive force, but that avoids the criticism I just sketched, can be described. Recall that it is the aim of cognitive psychology to decompose mental processes into combinations of processes in which mechanisms generate representations, other mechanisms transform representations, and still other mechanisms compare representations, issuing reports to still other mechanisms, the whole network being appropriately connected to sensory input transducers and motor output devices.
The goal of such theorizing is to decompose these processes to the point at which the mechanisms that carry out the operations have no internal goings on that are themselves decomposable into symbol manipulation by still further mechanisms. Such ultimate mechanisms are described as primitive, and are often pictured in flow diagrams as black boxes, whose realization is a matter of hardware, and whose operation is to be explained by the physical sciences, not psychology. See Fodor 1968, 1980, Dennett 1975. Now consider an ideally completed theory along these lines, a theory or cognitive mechanisms. Imagine a robot whose body is like yours, but whose head contains an army of homunculi, one for each black box. Each homunculus does the symbol manipulating job of the black box he replaces, transmitting his output to other homunculi by telephone in accordance with the cognitive theory. This homunculi head is just a variant of one that Searle uses, and it completely avoids the criticism I sketched above, because the cognitive theory it implements is actually true of it. Call this robot the cognitive homunculi head. The cognitive homunculi head is discussed in more detail in Block 1978, pp. 305-10. I shall argue that even if you have the intuition that the cognitive homunculi head has no intentionality, you should not regard this intuition as casting doubt on the truth of symbol manipulation theories of thought. One line of argument against the cognitive homunculi head is that its persuasive power may be due to a, not seeing the forest for the trees, illusion, see Lycan's commentary, this issue, and Lycan, forthcoming. Another point is that brute untutored intuition tends to balk at assigning intentionality to any physical system, including Sorrel's beloved brains. Does Searle really think that it is an initially congenial idea that a hunk of grey jelly is the seed of his intentionality? Could one imagine a less likely candidate? What makes grey jelly so intuitively satisfying to Searle is obviously his knowledge that brains are the seed of our intentionality. But here we see the difficulty in relying on considered intuitions, namely that they depend on our beliefs, and among the beliefs most likely to play a role in the case at hand are precisely our doctrines about whether the formal symbol manipulation theory of thinking is true or false. Let me illustrate this in another point via another example, Block 1978, page 291. Suppose there is a part of the universe that contains matter that is infinitely divisible. In that part of the universe, there are intelligent creatures much smaller than our elementary particles who decide to devote the next few hundred years to creating out of their matter substances with the chemical and physical characteristics, except at the subelementary particle level, of our elements. The build hordes of spaceships of different varieties about the sizes of our electrons, protons, and other elementary particles, and fly the ships in such a way as to mimic the behavior of these elementary particles. The ships contain apparatus to produce and detect the type of radiation elementary particles give off. They do this to produce huge, by our standards, masses of substances with the chemical and physical characteristics of oxygen, carbon, and other elements. You go off on an expedition to that part of the universe, and discover the oxygen, and, carbon. Unaware of its real nature, you set up a colony, using these, elements, to grow plants for food, provide, air, to breathe, and so on. Since one's molecules are constantly being exchanged with the environment, you and other colonizers come to be composed mainly of the, matter, made of the tiny people in spaceships. If any intuitions about homunculi heads are clear, it is clear that coming to be made of the homunculi-infested matter would not affect your mentality. Thus we see that intuition need not balk at assigning intentionality to a being whose intentionality owes crucially to the actions of internal homunculi. Why is it so obvious that coming to be made of homunculi-infested matter would not affect our sapience or sentience? I submit that it is because we have all absorbed enough neurophysiology to know that changes in particles in the brain that do not affect the brain's basic, electrochemical, mechanisms do not affect mentality. Our intuitions about the mentality of homunculi heads are obviously influenced, if not determined, by what we believe. If so, then the burden of proof lies with Searle to show that the intuition that the cognitive homunculi head has no intentionality, an intuition that I and many others do not share, is not due to doctrine hostile to the symbol manipulation account of intentionality. In sum, 
An argument such as Searle's requires a careful examination of the source of the intuition that the argument depends on, and examination Searle does not begin. Acknowledgement. I am grateful to Jerry Fodor and George Ray for comments on an earlier draft. Note. 1. While the crude version of behaviorism is refuted by well-known arguments, there is a more sophisticated version that avoids them. However, it can be refuted using an example akin to the one Searle uses against Schenck. Such an example is sketched in Block 1978, page 294, and elaborated in Block, forthcoming. By Bruce Bridgman. Psychology Board of Studies. University of California. Santa Crux, Calif. 95064. Brains plus Programs Minds. There are two sides to this commentary, the first that machines can embody somewhat more than Searle imagines, and the other that humans embody somewhat less. My conclusion will be that the two systems can in principle achieve similar levels of function. My response to Sorrel's Gedanken experiment is a variant of the robot reply. The robot simply needs more information, both environmental and a priori, than Searle is willing to give to it. The robot can internalize meaning only if it can receive information relevant to a definition of meaning, that is, information with a known relationship to the outside world. First it needs some Kantian innate ideas, such as the fact that some input lines, for instance, inputs from the two eyes or from locations in the same eye, are topographically related to one another. In biological brains this is done with labeled lines. Some of the inputs, such as visual inputs, will be connected primarily with spatial processing programs while others such as auditory ones will be more closely related to temporal processing. Further, the system will be built to avoid some input strings, those representing pain, for example, and to seek others, water when thirsty. These properties and many more are built into the structure of human brains genetically, but can be built into a program as a database just as well. It may be that the homunculus represented in this program would not know what's going on, but it would soon learn, Bequasse it has all of the information necessary to construct a representation of events in the outside world. My super robot would learn about the number 5, for instance, in the same way that a child does, by interaction with the outside world where the occurrence of the string of symbols representing 5, in its visual or auditory inputs corresponds with the more direct experience of 5 of something. The fact that numbers can be coded in the computer in more economical ways is no more relevant than the fact that the number 5 is coded in the digits of a child's hand. Both a priori knowledge and environmental knowledge could be made similar in quantity and quality to that available to a human. Now I will try to show that human intentionality is not as qualitatively different from machine states as it might seem to an introspectionist. The brain is similar to a computer program in that it too receives only strings of input and produces only strings of output. The inputs are small O-volt signals entering in great profusion along afferent nerves, and the outputs are physically identical signals leaving the central nervous system on efferent nerves. The brain is deaf, dumb, and blind, so that the electrical signals, and a few hormonal messages which need not concern us here, are the only ways that the brain has of knowing about its world or acting upon it. The exception to this rule is the existing information stored in the brain, both that given in genetic development and that added by experience. But it too came without intentionality of the sort that Searle seems to require, the genetic information being received from long strings of DNA-based sequences. Clearly there is no intentionality here, and previous inputs being made up of the same streams of zero volt signals that constitute the present input. Now it is clear that no neuron receiving any of these signals or similar signals generated inside the brain has any idea of what is going on. The neuron is only a humble machine which receives inputs and generates outputs as a function of the temporal and spatial relations of the inputs, and its own structural properties. To assert any further properties of brains is the worst sort of dualism. Searle grants that humans have intentionality, and toward the end of his article he also admits that many animals might have intentionality also. But how far down the phylogenetic scale is he willing to go? See, Cognition and Consciousness in Non-Human Species, BBS 14, 19781? Does a single-celled animal have intentionality? 
Clearly not, for it is only a simple machine which receives physically identifiable inputs and, automatically, generates reflex outputs. The hydra with a few dozen neurons might be explained in the same way, a simple nerve network with inputs and outputs that are restricted, relatively easy to understand, and processed according to fixed patterns. Now what about the mollusk with a few hundred neurons, the insect with a few thousand, the amphibian with a few million, or the mammal with billions? To make his argument convincing, Searle needs a criterion for a dividing line in his implicit dualism. We are left with a human brain that has an intention-free, genetically determined structure, on which are superimposed the results of storms of tiny nerve signals. From this we somehow introspect an intentionality that cannot be assigned to machines. Searle uses the example of arithmetic manipulations to show how humans understand something that machines don't. I submit that neither humans nor machines understand numbers in the sense Searle intends. The understanding of numbers greater than about 5 is always an illusion, for humans can deal with larger numbers only by using memorized tricks rather than true understanding. If I want to add 27 and 54, I don't use some direct numerical understanding or even a spatial or electrical analog in my brain. Instead, I apply rules that I memorized in elementary school without really knowing what they meant, and combine these rules with memorized facts of addition of one-digit numbers to arrive at an answer without understanding the numbers themselves. Though I have the feeling that I am performing operations on numbers, in terms of the algorithms I use there is nothing numerical about it. In the same way I can add numbers in the billions, although neither I nor anyone else has any concept of what these numbers mean in terms of perceptually meaningful quantities. Any further understanding of the number system that I possess is irrelevant, for it is not used in performing simple computations. The illusion of having a consciousness of numbers is similar to the illusion of having a full-color, well-focused visual field. Such a concept exists in our consciousness, but the physiological reality falls far short of the introspection. High-quality color information is available only in about the central 30 degrees of the visual field, and the best spatial information in only 1 or 2 degrees. I suggest that the feeling of intentionality is a cognitive illusion similar to the feeling of the high-quality visual image. Consciousness is a neurological system like any other, with functions such as the long-term direction of behavior, intentionality, access to long-term memories, and several other characteristics that make it a powerful, though limited capacity, processor of biologically useful information. All of Sorrell's replies to his Gedanken experiment are variations on the theme that I have described here, that an adequately designed machine could include intentionality as an emergent quality even though individual parts, transistors, neurons, or whatever, have none. All of the replies have an element of truth, and their shortcomings are more in their failure to communicate the similarity of brains and machines to Searle than in any internal weaknesses. Perhaps the most important difference between brains and machines lies not in their instantiation but in their history, for humans have evolved to perform a variety of poorly understood functions including reproduction and survival in a complex social and ecological context. Programs, being designed without extensive evolution, have more restricted goals and motivations. Sorrell's accusation of dualism in AL falls wide of the mark because the mechanist does not insist on a particular mechanism in the organism, but only that mental processes be represented in a physical system when the system is functioning. A program lying on a tape spool in a corner is no more conscious than a brain preserved in a glass jar, and insisting that the program if read into an appropriate computer would function with intentionality asserts only that the adequate machine consists of an organization imposed on a physical substrate. The organization is no more mentalistic than the substrate itself. Artificial intelligence is about programs rather than machines only Bequasse the process of organizing information and inputs and outputs into an information system has been largely solved by digital computers. Therefore, the program is the only step in the process left to worry about. Searle may well be right that present programs, as in Shank and Abelson 1977, do not instantiate intentionality according to his definition. The issue is not whether present programs do this but whether it is possible in principle to build machines that make plans and achieve goals. Searle has given us no evidence that this is not possible. By Arthur C. Danto. Department of Philosophy, Columbia University, New York, 
NY 10027. The use and mention of terms in the simulation of linguistic understanding. In the ballet Capalia, a dancer mimics a clockwork dancing doll simulating a dancer. The imitating movements, dancing twice removed, are predictably, mechanical, given the discrepancies of outward resemblance between clockwork dancers and real ones. These discrepancies may diminish to zero with the technological progress of clockwork, until a dancer mimicking a clockwork dancer simulating a dancer may present a spectacle of three indiscernible dancers engaged in a pas de trois. By behavioral criteria, nothing would enable us to identify which is the doll, and the lingering question of whether the clockwork doll is really dancing or only seeming to seems merely verbal unless we adopt a criterion of meaning much favored by behaviorism that makes the question itself nonsensical. The question of whether machines instantiate mental predicates has been cast in much the same terms since Turing, and by tacit appeal to outward indiscernibility the question of whether machines understand is either dissolved or trivialized. It is in part a protest against assimilating the meaning of mental predicates to mere behavioral criteria and assimilation of which Abelson and Shank are clearly guilty, making them behaviorists despite themselves that animates Sorrell's effort to mimic a clockwork thinker simulating understanding. To the degree that he instantiates the same program it does and fails to understand what is understood by those whom the machine is designed to simulate, even if the output of the three of them cannot be discriminated then the machine itself fails to understand. The argumentation is picturesque, and may not be compelling for those resolved to define, such terms as, understanding, by outward criteria. So I shall recast Sorrell's thesis in logical terms which must force his opponents either to concede machines do not understand or else, in order to maintain they might understand, to abandon the essentially behaviorist theory of meaning for mental predicates. Consider, as does Searle, a language one does not understand but that one can in a limited sense be said to read. Thus I cannot read Greek with understanding, but I know the Greek letters and their associated phonetic values, and am able to pronounce Greek words. Milton's daughters were able to read aloud to their blind father from Greek, Latin, and Hebrew texts though they had no idea what they were saying. And they could, as can I, answer certain questions about Greek words, if only how many letters there are, what their names are, and how they sound when voiced. Briefly, in terms of the distinction logicians draw between the use and mention of a term, they knew, as I know, such properties of Greek words as may be identified by someone who is unable to use Greek words in Greek sentences. Let us designate these as M properties, in contrast to U properties, the latter being those properties one must know in order to use Greek, or any, words. The question then is whether a machine programmed to simulate understanding is restricted to M properties, that is, whether the program is such that the machine cannot use the words it otherwise may be said to manipulate under M rules and M laws. If so, the machine exercises its powers over what we can recognize in the words of a language we do not understand, without, as it were, thinking in that language. There is some evidence that in fact the machine operates pretty much by pattern recognition, much in the manner of Milton's unhappy daughters. Now I shall suppose it granted that we cannot define the properties of words exhaustively through their M properties. If this is true, Shank's machines, restricted to M properties, cannot think in the languages they simulate thinking in. One can ask whether it is possible for the machines to exhibit the output they do exhibit if all they have is M competence. If not, then they must have some sort of U competence. But the difficulty with putting the question thus is that there are two ways in which the output can be appreciated, as showing understanding or as only seeming to, and as such the structure of the problem is of a piece with the structure of the mind-body problem in the following respect. Whatever outward behavior, even of a human being, we would want to describe with a psychological, or mental, predicate, say that the action of raising an arm was performed has a physical description that is true whether or not the psychological description is true for example, that the arm went up. The physical description then underdetermines the distinction between bodily movements and actions, or between actions and bodily movements that exactly resemble them. So whatever outward behavior takes a psychological caret predicate takes a physical caret predicate that underdetermines whether the former is true or false of what the latter is true of. So we cannot infer from a caret description whether or not a caret description applies. To be sure, we can ruthlessly define asterisk terms as four greater than terms, 
in which case the inference is easy but trivial, but then we cannot any longer, as Shank and Abelson wish to do, explain outward behavior with such concepts as understanding. In any case, the distinction between M properties and U properties is exactly parallel. Anything by way of output we would be prepared to describe in U terms has an M description true of it, which underdetermines whether the U description is true or not. So no pattern of outputs entails that language is being used, nor hence that the source of the output understands, and as much as it may have been cleverly designed to emit a pattern exhaustively describable in M terms. The problem is perfectly Cartesian. We may worry about whether any of our fellows is an automaton. The question is whether the shank machine, SAM, is so programmed that only M properties apply to its output. Then, however closely, exactly, it simulates what someone with understanding would show in his behavior, not one step has been taken toward constructing a machine that understands. And Searle is really right. For while U competence cannot be defined in M terms, an M specified simulation can be given of any U performance, however protracted and intricate. The simulator will only show, not have, the properties of the U performance. The performances may be indiscriminable, but one constitutes a use of language only if that which emits it in fact uses language. But it cannot be said, to use language if its program, as it were, is written solely in M terms. The principles on the basis of which a user of language structures a story or text are so different from the principles on the basis of which one could predict, from certain M properties, what further M properties to expect, that even if the outputs are indiscernible, the principles must be discernible. And to just the degree that they deviate does a program employing the latter sorts of principles fail to simulate the principles employed in understanding stories or texts. The degree of deviation determines the degree to which the strong claims of AL are false. This is all the more the case if the M principles are not to be augmented with U principles. Any of us can predict what sounds a person may make when he answers certain questions that he understands, but that is because we understand where he is going. If we had to develop the ability to predict sounds only on the basis of other sounds, we might attain an astounding congruence with what our performance would have been if we knew what was going on. Even if no one could tell we didn't, understanding would be nil. On the other hand, the question remains as to whether the shank machine uses words. If it does, Searle has failed as a simulator of something that does not simulate but genuinely possesses understanding. If he is right, there is a pretty consequence. M properties yield, as it were, pictures of words, and machines, if they encode propositions, do so pictorially. By Daniel Dennett. Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, Stanford, Calif. 94305. The Milk of Human Intentionality. I want to distinguish Sorrell's arguments, which I consider sophistry, from his positive view, which raises a useful challenge to Al. If only Bequasse it should induce a more thoughtful formulation of Al's foundations. First, I must support the charge of sophistry by diagnosing, briefly, the tricks with mirrors that give his case a certain spurious plausibility. Then I will comment briefly on his positive view. Sorrell's form of argument is a familiar one to philosophers, he has constructed what one might call an intuition pump, a device for provoking a family of intuitions by producing variations on a basic thought experiment. An intuition pump is not, typically, an engine of discovery, but a persuader or pedagogical tool a way of getting people to see things your way once you've seen the truth, as Searle thinks he has. I would be the last to disparage the use of intuition pumps I love to use them myself but they can be abused. In this instance I think Searle relies almost entirely on ill-gotten gains. Favorable intuitions generated by misleadingly presented thought experiments. Searle begins with a Shank-style AL task, where both the input and output are linguistic objects, sentences of Chinese. In one regard, perhaps, this is fair play, since Shank and others have certainly allowed enthusiastic claims of understanding for such programs to pass their lips, or go uncorrected. But from another point of view it is a cheap shot, since it has long been a familiar theme within L circles that such programs I call them bedridden programs since their only modes of perception and action are linguistic tackle at best a severe truncation of the interesting task of modeling real understanding. 
Such programs exhibit no language entry and language exit transitions, to use Wilfred Sellers's terms, and have no capacity for non-linguistic perception or bodily action. The shortcomings of such models have been widely recognized for years in L. For instance, the recognition was implicit in Winograd's decision to give SHRDLU something to do in order to have something to talk about. A computer whose only input and output was verbal would always be blind to the meaning of what was written, Dennett 1969, page 182. The idea has been around for a long time. So, many if not all supporters of Strong Al would simply agree with Searle that in his initial version of the Chinese room, no one and nothing could be said to understand Chinese, except perhaps in some very strained, elliptical, and attenuated sense. Hence what Searle calls the robot reply, Yale, is no surprise, though its coming from Yale suggests that even Shank and his school are now attuned to this point. Sorrell's response to the robot reply is to revise his thought experiment, claiming it will make no difference. Let our hero in the Chinese room also, unbeknownst to him, control the non-linguistic actions of, and receive the perceptual informings of, a robot. Still, Searle asks you to consult your intuitions at this point. No one and nothing will really understand Chinese. But Searle does not dwell on how vast a difference this modification makes to what we are being asked to imagine. Nor does Searle stop to provide vivid detail when he again revises his thought experiment to meet the system's reply. The system's reply suggests, entirely correctly in my opinion, that Searle has confused different levels of explanation and attribution. Understand English. My brain doesn't nor, more particularly, does the proper part of it, if such can be isolated, that operates to process incoming sentences and to execute my speech act intentions. Searle's portrayal and discussion of the system's reply is not sympathetic, but he is prepared to give ground in any case. His proposal is that we may again modify his Chinese room example, if we wish, to accommodate the objection. We are to imagine our hero in the Chinese room to internalize all of these elements of the system, so that he incorporates the entire system. Our hero is now no longer an uncomprehending sub-personal part of a supersystem to which understanding of Chinese might be properly attributed, since there is no part of the supersystem external to his skin. Still Searle insists, in another plea for our intuitional support, that no one not our hero or any other person he may in some metaphysical sense now be a part of can be said to understand Chinese. But will our intuition support Searle when we imagine this case in detail? Putting both modifications together, we are to imagine our hero controlling both the linguistic IDC and non-linguistic behavior of a robot who is himself. When the Chinese words for, hands up, this is a stick up, are intoned directly in his ear, he will uncomprehendingly, and at breathtaking speed, hand simulate the program, which leads him to do things. What things is he to order himself in Chinese to stimulate his own motor neurons and then obey the order? That lead to his handing over his own wallet while begging for mercy, in Chinese, with his own lips. Now is it at all obvious that, imagined this way, no one in the situation understands Chinese? In point of fact, Searle has simply not told us how he intends us to imagine this case, which we are licensed to do by his two modifications. Are we to suppose that if the words had been in English, our hero would have responded, appropriately, in his native English? Or is he so engrossed in his massive homuncular task that he responds with a, simulated, incomprehension that would be the program-driven response to this bit of incomprehensible, to the robot, input? If the latter, our hero has taken leave of his English-speaking friends for good, drowned in the engine room of a Chinese-speaking person, inhabiting his body. If the former, the situation is drastically in need of further description by Searle, for just what he is imagining is far from clear. There are several radically different alternatives all so outlandishly unrealizable as to caution us not to trust our gut reactions about them in any case. When we imagine our hero, incorporating the entire system, are we to imagine that he pushes buttons with his fingers in order to get his own arms to move? Surely not, since all the buttons are now internal. Are we to imagine that when he responds to the Chinese for, pass the salt, please, by getting his hand to grasp the salt and move it in a certain direction, he doesn't notice that this is what he is doing? In short, could anyone who became accomplished in this imagined exercise fail to become fluent in Chinese in the process?
Perhaps, but it all depends on details of this. The only crucial thought experiment in Searle's kit, that Searle does not provide. Searle tells us that when he first presented versions of this paper to AL audiences, objections were raised that he was prepared to meet, in part, by modifying his thought experiment. Why then did he not present us, his subsequent audience, with the modified thought experiment in the first place, instead of first leading us on a tour of red herrings? Could it be because it is impossible to tell the doubly modified story in anything approaching a cogent and detailed manner without provoking the unwanted intuitions? Told in detail, the doubly modified story suggests either that there are two people, one of whom understands Chinese, inhabiting one body, or that one English-speaking person has, in effect, been engulfed within another person, a person who understands Chinese, among many other things. These and other similar considerations convince me that we may turn our backs on the Chinese room at least until a better version is deployed. In its current state of disrepair I can get it to pump my contrary intuitions at least as plentifully as Sorrel's. What, though, of his positive view? In the conclusion of his paper, Searle observes, no one would suppose that we could produce milk and sugar by running a computer simulation of the formal sequences in lactation and photosynthesis, but where the mind is concerned many people are willing to believe in such a miracle. I don't think this is just a curious illustration of Sorrel's vision. I think it vividly expresses the feature that most radically distinguishes his view from the prevailing winds of doctrine. For Searle, intentionality is rather like a wonderful substance secreted by the brain the way the pancreas secretes insulin. Brains produce intentionality, he says, whereas other objects, such as computer programs, do not, even if they happen to be designed to mimic the input-output behavior of, some, brain. There is, then, a major disagreement about what the product of the brain is. Most people in AL, and most functionalists in the philosophy of mind, would say that its product is something like control. What a brain is for is for governing the right, appropriate, intelligent input-output relations, where these are deemed to be, in the end, relations between sensory inputs and behavioral outputs of some sort. That looks to Searle like some sort of behaviorism, and he will have none of it. Passing the Turing test may be prima facie evidence that something has intentionality really has a mind, but, as soon as we knew that the behavior was the result of a formal program, and that the actual causal properties of the physical substance were irrelevant we would abandon the assumption of intentionality. So on Sorrell's view the right input-output relations are symptomatic but not conclusive or criterial evidence of intentionality. The proof of the pudding is in the presence of some, entirely unspecified, causal properties that are internal to the operation of the brain. This internality needs highlighting. When Searle speaks of causal properties one may think at first that those causal properties crucial for intentionality are those that link the activities of the system, brain or computer, to the things in the world with which the system interacts including, preeminently, the active, sentient body whose behavior the system controls. But Searle insists that these are not the relevant causal properties. He concedes the possibility in principle of duplicating the input-output competence of a human brain with a formal program, which, suitably attached, would guide a body through the world exactly as that body's brain would, and thus would acquire all the relevant extra-systemic causal properties of the brain. But such a brain substitute would utterly fail to produce intentionality in the process. Searle holds, Bequasse it would lack some other causal properties of the brain's internal operation. How, though, would we know that it lacked these properties, if all we knew was that it was, an implementation of, a formal program? Since Searle concedes that the operation of anything and hence a human brain can be described in terms of the execution of a formal program, the mere existence of such a level of description of a system would not preclude its having intentionality. It seems that it is only when we can see that the system in question is only the implementation of a formal program that we can conclude that it doesn't make a little intentionality on the side. But nothing could be only the implementation of a formal program. Computers exude heat and noise in the course of their operations why not intentionality too? Besides, which is the major product and which the byproduct? Searle can hardly deny that brains do in fact produce lots of reliable and appropriate bodily control. They do this, he thinks, by producing intentionality, 
but he concedes that something such as a computer with the right input-output rules could produce the control without making or using any intentionality. But then control is the main product and intentionality just one, no doubt natural, means of obtaining it. Had our ancestors been non-intentional mutants with mere control systems, nature would just as readily have selected them instead. I owe this point to Bob Moore. Or, to look at the other side of the coin, brains with lots of intentionality but no control competence would be producers of an ecologically irrelevant product, which evolution would not protect. Luckily for us though, our brains make intentionality. If they didn't, we'd behave just as we now do, but of course we wouldn't mean it. Surely Searle does not hold the view I have just ridiculed, although it seems as if he does. He can't really view intentionality as a marvelous mental fluid, so what is he trying to get at? I think his concern with internal properties of control systems is a misconceived attempt to capture the interior point of view of a conscious agent. He does not see how any mere computer, chopping away at a formal program, could harbor such a point of view. But that is because he is looking too deep. It is just as mysterious if we peer into the synapse-filled jungles of the brain and wonder where consciousness is hiding. It is not at that level of description that a proper subject of consciousness will be found. That is the system's reply, which Searle does not yet see to be a step in the right direction away from his updated version of Elon Vital. Note. 1. For an intuition pump involving exactly this case a prosthetic brain but designed to pump contrary intuitions, see, where am I? In Dennett, 1978. By John C. Eccles. C.A. A. La Gra, Contra, Locarno, C.H. 6611, Switzerland. A dualist-interactionist perspective. Searle clearly states that the basis of his critical evaluation of AL is dependent on two propositions. The first is, intentionality in human beings, and animals, is a product of causal features of the brain. He supports this proposition by an unargued statement that it is an empirical fact about the actual causal relations between mental processes and brains. It says simply that certain brain processes are sufficient for intentionality, my italics. This is a dogma of the psychoneural identity theory, which is one variety of the materialist theories of the mind. There is no mention of the alternative hypothesis of dualist interactionism that Popper and I published some time ago, 1977, and that I have further developed more recently, Eccles 1978, 1979. According to that hypothesis intentionality is a property of the self-conscious mind, world 2 of Popper, the brain being used as an instrument in the realization of intentions. I refer to figure E7-2 of Popper and Eccles, 1977, where intentions appear in the box, inner senses, of world 2 with arrows indicating the flow of information by which intentions in the mind cause changes in the liaison brain and so eventually involuntary movements. I have no difficulty with Proposition 2, but I would suggest that 3, 4, and 5 be rewritten with, mind, substituted for, brain. Again the statement, only a machine could think, and only very special kinds of machines. With internal causal powers equivalent to those of brains, is the identity theory dogma. I say dogma bequasse it is unargued and without empirical support. The identity theory is very weak empirically, being merely a theory of promise. So long as Searle speaks about human performance without regarding intentionality as a property of the brain, I can appreciate that he has produced telling arguments against the strong Al theory. The story of the hamburger with the Gektanken experiment of the Chinese symbols is related to Premack's attempts to teach the chimpanzee Sarah a primitive level of human language as expressed in symbols, see Premack. Does the chimpanzee have a theory of mind? BBS 141978 the criticism of Lenberg, 1975, was that, by conditioning, Sarah had learned a symbol game, using symbols instrumentally, but had no idea that it was related to human language. He trained high school students with the procedures described by Premack, closely replicating Premack's study. The human subjects were quickly able to obtain considerably lower error scores than those reported for the chimpanzee. However, they were unable to translate correctly a single one of their completed sentences into English. In fact, they did not understand that there was any correspondence between the plastic symbols and language. 
instead they were under the impression that their task was to solve puzzles. I think this simple experiment indicates a fatal flaw in all the AL work. No matter how complex the performance instantiated by the computer, it can be no more than a triumph for the computer designer in simulation. The Turing machine is a magician's dream or nightmare. It was surprising that after the detailed brain-mind statements of the abstract, I did not find the word, brain, in Sorrell's text through the whole of his opening three pages of argument, where he uses mind, mental states, human understanding, and cognitive states exactly as would be done in a text on dualist interactionism. Not until, the robot reply, does brain appear as, computer brain. However, from, the brain simulator reply, in the statements and criticisms of the various other replies, brain, neuron firings, synapses, and the like are profusely used in a rather naive way. For example, imagine the computer programmed with all the synapses of a human brain, is more than I can do by many orders of magnitude. So, the combination reply, reads like fantasy and to no purpose. I agree that it is a mistake to confuse simulation with duplication. But I do not object to the idea that the distinction between the program and its realization in the hardware seems to be parallel to the distinction between the mental operations and the level of brain operations. However, Searle believes that the equation, mind is to brain as program is to hardware, breaks down at several points. I would prefer to substitute programmer for program, because as a dualist interactionist I accept the analogy that as conscious beings we function as programmers of our brains. In particular I regret Searle's third argument, mental states and events are literally a product of the operation of the brain, but the program is not in that way a product of the computer, and so later we are told, whatever else intentionality is, it is a biological phenomenon, and it is as likely to be causally dependent on the specific biochemistry of its origins as lactation, photosynthesis, or any other biological phenomenon. I have the feeling of being transported back to the 19th century, where, as Derry Surly recorded by Sherrington, 1950, the oracular Professor Tyndall, presiding over the British Association at Belfast, told his audience that as the bile is a secretion of the liver, so the mind is a secretion of the brain. In summary, my criticisms arise from fundamental differences in respective beliefs in relation to the brain-mind problem, so long as Searle is referring to human intentions and performances without reference to the brain-mind problem. I can appreciate the criticisms that he marshals against the AL beliefs that an appropriately programmed computer is a mind literally understanding and having other cognitive states. Most of Sorrell's criticisms are acceptable for dualist interactionism. It is high time that strong AL was discredited. By J. A. Fodor. Department of Psychology, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Cambridge, Massachusetts. 02139. Searle on what only brains can do. 1. Searle is certainly right that instantiating the same program that the brain does is not, in and of itself, a sufficient condition for having those propositional attitudes characteristic of the organism that has the brain. If some people in AL think that it is, they're wrong. As for the Turing test, it has all the usual difficulties with predictions of, no difference, you can't distinguish the truth of the prediction from the insensitivity of the test instrument. 1. 2. However, Sorrell's treatment of the, robot reply, is quite unconvincing. Given that there are the right kinds of causal linkages between the symbols that the device manipulates and things in the world, including the afferent and efferent transducers of the device it is quite unclear that intuition rejects ascribing propositional attitudes to it. All that Sorrell's example shows is that the kind of causal linkage he imagines one that is, in effect, mediated by a man sitting in the head of a robot is, unsurprisingly, not the right kind. 3. We don't know how to say what the right kinds of causal linkage are. This, also, is unsurprising since we don't know how to answer the closely related question as to what kinds of connection between a formula and the world determine the interpretation under which the formula is employed. We don't have an answer to this question for any symbolic system, a fortiori, not for mental representations. These questions are closely related because, given the mental representation view, it is natural to assume that what makes mental states intentional is primarily that they involve relations to semantically interpreted mental objects. Again, relations of the right kind. 4. 
It seems to me that Searle has misunderstood the main point about the treatment of intentionality in representational theories of the mind. This is not surprising since proponents of the theory especially in AL have been notably unlucid in expounding it. For the record, then, the main point is this. Intentional properties of propositional attitudes are viewed as inherited from semantic properties of mental representations, and not from the functional role of mental representations, unless, functional role, is construed broadly enough to include symbol-world relations. In effect, what is proposed is a reduction of the problem what makes mental states intentional to the problem what bestows semantic properties on, fixes the interpretation of, a symbol. This reduction looks promising because we're going to have to answer the latter question anyhow, for example, in constructing theories of natural languages, and we need the notion of mental representation anyhow, for example, to provide appropriate domains for mental processes. It may be worth adding that there is nothing new about this strategy. Locke, for example, thought uh, that the intentional properties of mental states are inherited from the semantic, referential, properties of mental representations. b. That mental processes are formal, associative. And c. That the objects from which mental states inherit their intentionality are the same ones over which mental processes are defined. Namely ideas. It's my view that no serious alternative to this treatment of propositional attitudes has ever been proposed. 5. To say that a computer, or a brain, performs formal operations on symbols is not the same thing as saying that it performs operations on formal, in the sense of, uninterpreted, symbols. This equivocation occurs repeatedly in Sorrell's paper, and causes considerable confusion. If there are mental representations they must, of course, be interpreted objects. It is because they are interpreted objects that mental states are intentional. But the brain might be a computer for all that. 6. This situation needing a notion of causal connection, but not knowing which notion of causal connection is the right one is entirely familiar in philosophy. It is, for example, extremely plausible that a perceives b can be true only where there is the right kind of causal connection between a and b. And we don't know what the right kind of causal connection is here either. Demonstrating that some kinds of causal connection are the wrong kinds would not, of course, prejudice the claim. For example, suppose we interpolated a little man between a and b, whose function it is to report to a on the presence of b. We would then have, inter alia, a sort of causal link from a to b, but we wouldn't have the sort of causal link that is required for a to perceive b. It would, of course, be a fallacy to argue from the fact that this causal linkage fails to reconstruct perception to the conclusion that no causal linkage would succeed. Sorrell's argument against the robot reply is a fallacy of precisely that sort. 7. It is entirely reasonable, indeed it must be true, that the right kind of causal relation is the kind that holds between our brains and our transducer mechanisms, on the one hand, and between our brains and distal objects, on the other. It would not begin to follow that only our brains can bear such relations to transducers and distal objects, and it would also not follow that being the same sort of thing our brain is, in any biochemical sense of, same sort, is a necessary condition for being in that relation, and it would also not follow that formal manipulations of symbols are not among the links in such causal chains. And, even if our brains are the only sorts of things that can be in that relation, the fact that they are might quite possibly be of no particular interest, that would depend on why it's true. Two. Searle gives no clue as to why he thinks the biochemistry is important for intentionality and, prima facie, the idea that what counts is how the organism is connected to the world seems far more plausible. After all, it's easy enough to imagine, in a rough and ready sort of way, how the fact that my thought is causally connected to a tree might bear on its being a thought about a tree. But it's hard to imagine how the fact that, to put it crudely, my thought is made out of hydrocarbons could matter, except on the unlikely hypothesis that only hydrocarbons can be causally connected to trees in the way that brains are. 8. The empirical evidence for believing that manipulation of symbols is involved in mental processes derives largely from the considerable success of work in linguistics, psychology, and AL that has been grounded in that assumption. Little of the relevant data concerns the simulation of behavior or the passing of Turing tests, though Searle writes as though all of it does. 
Searle gives no indication at a lot how the facts that this work accounts for are to be explained if not on the mental processes or formal processes view. To claim that there is no argument that symbol manipulation is necessary for mental processing while systematically ignoring all the evidence that has been alleged in favor of the claim strikes me as an extremely curious strategy on Searle's part. 9. Some necessary conditions are more interesting than others. While connections to the world and symbol manipulations are both presumably necessary for intentional processes, there is no reason, so far, to believe that the former provide a theoretical domain for a science. Whereas, there is considerable a posteriori reason to suppose that the latter do. If this is right, it provides some justification for AL practice, if not for AL rhetoric. 10. Talking involves performing certain formal operations on symbols, stringing words together. Yet, not everything that can string words together can talk. It does not follow from these banal observations that what we utter are uninterpreted sounds, or that we don't understand what we say, or that whoever talks talks nonsense, or that only hydrocarbons can assert similarly, mutatis mutandis, if you substitute thinking for talking. Notes. 1. Assume, for simplicity, that there is only one program that the brain instantiates, which, of course, there isn't. Notice, by the way, that even passing the Turing test requires doing more than just manipulating symbols. A device that can't run a typewriter can't play the game. 2. For example, it might be that, in point of physical fact, only things that have the same simultaneous values of weight, density, and shade of gray that brains have can do the things that brains can. This would be surprising, but it's hard to see why a psychologist should care much. Not even if it turned out still in point of physical fact that brains are the only things that can have that weight, density, and color. If that's dualism, I imagine we can live with it. By John Hogland. Center Tor Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. Stanford, Calif. 94305. Programs, causal powers, and intentionality Searle is in a bind. He denies that any Turing test for intelligence is adequate that is, that behaving intelligently is a sufficient condition for being intelligent. But he dare not deny that creatures physiologically very different from people might be intelligent nonetheless smart green saucer pilots, say? So he needs an intermediate criterion, not so specific to us as to rule out the aliens, yet not so dissociated from specifics as to admit any old object with the right behavior. His suggestion is that only objects, made of stuff, with, the right causal powers, can have intentionality, and hence, only such objects can genuinely understand anything or be intelligent. This suggestion, however, is incompatible with the main argument of his paper. Ostensibly, that argument is against the claim that working according to a certain program can ever be sufficient for understanding anything no matter how cleverly the program is contrived so as to make the relevant object, computer, robot, or whatever, behave as if, understood. The crucial move is replacing the central processor, circa, p, u, with a superfast person whom we might as well call, Sorrel's demon. And Searle argues that an English-speaking demon could perfectly well follow a program for simulating a Chinese speaker, without itself understanding a word of Chinese. The trouble is that the same strategy will work as well against any specification of, the right causal powers. Instead of manipulating formal tokens according to the specifications of some computer program, the demon will manipulate physical states or variables according to the specification of the right causal interactions. Just to be concrete, imagine that the right ones are those powers that our neuron tips have to titillate one another with neurotransmitters. The green aliens can be intelligent, even though they're based on silicon chemistry, because their silicon neurons have the same power of intertitillation. Now imagine covering each of the neurons of a Chinese criminal with a thin coating, which has no effect, except that it is impervious to neurotransmitters. And imagine further that Sorrel's demon can see the problem, and comes to the rescue. He peers through the coating at each neural tip, determines which transmitter, if any, would have been emitted, and then massages the adjacent tips in a way that has the same effect as if they had received that transmitter. Basically, instead of replacing the C, P, U, the demon is replacing the neurotransmitters. 
By hypothesis, the victim's behavior is unchanged. In particular, she still acts as if she understood Chinese. Now, however, none of her neurons has the right causal powers the demon has them, and he still understands only English. Therefore, having the right causal powers, even while embedded in a system such that the exercise of these powers leads to intelligent behavior, cannot be sufficient for understanding. Needless to say, a corresponding variation will work, whatever the relevant causal powers are. None of this should come as a surprise. A computer program just as a specification of the exercise of certain causal powers, the powers to manipulate various formal tokens, physical objects or states of some sort, in certain specified ways, depending on the presence of certain other such tokens. Of course, it is a particular way of specifying causal exercises of a particular sort that's what gives the computational paradigm its distinctive character. But Searle makes no use of this particularity. His argument depends only on the fact that causal powers can be specified independently of whatever it is that has the power. This is precisely what makes it possible to interpose the demon, in both the token interaction, program, and neuron interaction cases. There is no escape in urging that this is a dualistic, view OT causal powers, not intrinsically connected with, the actual properties, of physical objects. To speak of causal powers in any way that allows for generalization, to green aliens, for example, is ipso facto to abstract from the particulars of any given, realization. The point is independent of the example it works just as well for photosynthesis. Thus, flesh-colored plant-like organisms on the alien planet might photosynthesize, I take it, in a full and literal sense, so long as they contain some chemical, not necessarily chlorophyll, that absorbs light and uses the energy to make sugar and free oxygen out of carbon dioxide, or silicon dioxide, and water. This is what it means to specify photosynthesis as a causal power, rather than just a property that is, by definition, idiosyncratic to chlorophyll. But now, of course, the demon can enter, replacing both chlorophyll and its alien substitute. He devours photons, and thus energized, makes sugar from CO2 and H2O. It seems to me that the demon is photosynthesizing. Let's set aside the demon argument, however. Searle also suggests that, there is no reason to suppose, that understanding, or intentionality, has anything to do with, computer programs. This too, I think, rests on his failure to recognize that specifying a program is, in a distinctive way, specifying a range of causal powers and interactions. The central issue is what differentiates original intentionality from derivative intentionality. The former is intentionality that a thing, system, state, process, has, in its own right. The latter is intentionality that is borrowed from, or, conferred by, something else. Thus, on standard assumptions, which I will not question here, the intentionality of conscious thought and perception is original, whereas the intentionality, meaning, of linguistic tokens is merely conferred upon them by language users that is, Words don't have any meaning in and of themselves, but only in virtue of our giving them some. These are paradigm cases. Many other cases will fall clearly on one side or the other, or be questionable, or perhaps even marginal. No one denies that if all systems don't have original intentionality, then they at least have derivative intentionality, in a non-trivial sense because they have non-trivial interpretations. What Searle objects to is the thesis, held by many, that good enough all systems have, or will eventually have, original intentionality. Thought tokens, such as articulate beliefs and desires, and linguistic tokens, such as the expressions of articulate beliefs and desires, seem to have a lot in common as pointed out, for example, by Searle, 1979c. In particular, except for the original, derivative distinction, they have, or at least appear to have, closely parallel semantic structures and variations. There must be some other principal distinction between them, then, in virtue of which the former can be originally intentional, but the latter only derivatively so. A conspicuous candidate for this distinction is that thoughts are semantically active, whereas sentence tokens, written out, say, on a page, are semantically inert. Thoughts are constantly interacting with one another in the world, in ways that are semantically appropriate to their intentional content. The causal interactions of written sentence tokens, on the other hand, 
do not consistently reflect their content, except when they interact with people. Thoughts are embodied in a system that provides normal channels for them to interact with the world, and such that these normal interactions tend to maximize the fit between them and the world. That is, via perception, beliefs tend toward the truth, and, via action, the world tends toward what is desired. And there are channels of interaction among thoughts, various kinds of inference, via which the set of them tends to become more coherent, and to contain more consequences of its members. Naturally, other effects introduce aberrations and noise into the system, but the normal channels tend to predominate in the long run. There are no comparable channels of interaction for written tokens. In fact, according to this same standard view, the only semantically sensitive interactions that written tokens ever have are with thoughts. Insofar as they tend to express truths, it is because they express beliefs, and insofar as they tend to bring about their own satisfaction conditions, it is because they tend to bring about desires. Thus, the only semantically significant interactions that written tokens have with the world are via thoughts, and this, the suggestion goes, is why their intentionality is derivative. The interactions that thoughts have among themselves, within a single, system, are particularly important, for it is in virtue of these that thought can be subtle and indirect, relative to its interactions with the world that is, not easily fooled or thwarted. Thus, we tend to consider more than the immediately present evidence in making judgments, and more than the immediately present options in making plans. We weigh desiderata, seek further information, try things to see if they'll work, formulate general maxims and laws, estimate results and costs, go to the library, cooperate, manipulate, scheme, test, and reflect on what we're doing. All of these either are or involve a lot of thought-thought interaction, and tend, in the long run to broaden and improve the fit between thought and world. And they are typical as manifestations both of intelligence and of independence. I take it for granted that all of the interactions mentioned are, in some sense, causal hence, that it is among the system's causal powers, that it can have, instantiate, realize, produce, thoughts that interact with the world and each other in these ways. It is hard to tell whether these are the sorts of causal powers that Searle has in mind, both because he doesn't say, and because they don't seem terribly similar to photosynthesis and lactation. But, in any case, they strike me as strong candidates for the kinds of powers that would distinguish systems with intentionality that is, original intentionality from those without. The reason is that these are the only powers that consistently reflect the distinctively intentional character of the interactors, namely, their content, or, meaning, except, so to speak, passively, as in the case of written tokens being read. That is, the power to have states that are semantically active is the right, causal power for intentionality. It is this plausible claim that underlies the thesis that, sufficiently developed, AL systems could actually be intelligent, and have original intentionality. For a case can surely be made that their representations are semantically active, or, at least, that they would be if the system were built into a robot. Remember, we are conceding them at least derivative intentionality, so the states in question do have a content, relative to which we can gauge the semantic appropriateness of their causal interactions. And the central discovery of all computer technology is that devices can be contrived such that, relative to a certain interpretation, certain of their states will always interact, causally, in semantically appropriate ways, so long as the devices perform as designed electromechanically that is, these states can have, normal channels, of interaction, with each other and with the world, more or less comparable to those that underlie the semantic activity of thoughts. This point can hardly be denied, so long as it is made in terms of the derivative intentionality of computing systems, but what it seems to add to the archetypical, and, inert, derivative intentionality of, say, written text is, precisely, semantic activity. So, if, sufficiently rich, semantic activity is what distinguishes original from derivative intentionality, in other words, it's the, right, causal power, then it seems that, sufficiently rich, computing systems can have original intentionality. Now, like Searle, I am inclined to dispute this conclusion, but for entirely different reasons. 
I don't believe there is any conceptual confusion in supposing that the right causal powers for original intentionality are the ones that would be captured by specifying a program, that is, a virtual machine. Hence, I don't think the above plausibility argument can be dismissed out of hand, no reason to suppose, and so on. Nor can I imagine being convinced that, no matter how good I'll got, it would still be weak, that is, would not have created a real intelligence because it's still preceded by specifying programs. It seems to me that the interesting question is much more nitty-gritty empirical than that. Given that programs might be the right way to express the relevant causal structure, are they intact so? It is to this question that I expect the answer is no. In other words, I don't much care about Sorrel's demon working through a program for perfect simulation of a native Chinese speaker not because there's no such demon, but because there's no such program. Or rather, whether there is such a program, and if not, why not, are, in my view, the important questions. By Douglas R. Hofstadter. Computer Science Department. Indiana University, Bloomington, Indiana. 47,405 Reductionism and Religion. This religious diatribe against Al. Masquerading as a serious scientific argument, is one of the wrongest, most infuriating articles I have ever read in my life. It is matched in its power to annoy only by the famous article, Minds, Machines, and Godel, by J. R. Lucas, 1961. Sorrel's trouble is one that I can easily identify with. Like me, he has deep difficulty in seeing how mind, soul, I, can come out of brain, cells, atoms. To show his puzzlement, he gives some beautiful paraphrases of this mystery. One of my favorites is the water pipe simulation of a brain. It gets straight to the core of the mind-body problem. The strange thing is that Searle simply dismisses any possibility of such a system's being conscious with a hand wave of, absurd. I actually think he radically misrepresents the complexity of such a water pipe system both to readers and in his own mind, but that is a somewhat separable issue. The fact is, we have to deal with a reality of nature and realities of nature sometimes are absurd. Who would have believed that light consists of spinning massless wave particles obeying an uncertainty principle while traveling through a curved four-dimensional universe? The fact that intelligence, understanding, mind, consciousness, soul all do spring from an unlikely source an enormously tangled web of cell bodies, axons, synapses, and dendrites is absurd, and yet undeniable. How this can create an I is hard to understand, but once we accept that fundamental, strange, disorienting fact, then it should seem no more weird to accept a water pipe, I. Sorrel's way of dealing with this reality of nature is to claim he accepts it, but then he will not accept its consequences. The main consequence is that, intentionality, his name for soul is an outcome of formal processes. I admit that I have slipped one extra premise in here. That physical processes are formal, that is, rule-governed. To put it another way, the extra premise is that there is no intentionality at the level of particles. Perhaps I have misunderstood Searle. He may be a mystic and claim that there is intentionality at that level. But then how does one explain why it seems to manifest itself in consciousness only when the particles are arranged in certain special configurations brains but not, say, in water pipe arrangements of any sort and size? The conjunction of these two beliefs seems to me to compel one to admit the possibility of all the hopes of artificial intelligence, despite the fact that it will always baffle us to think of ourselves as, at bottom, formal systems. To people who have never programmed, the distinction between levels of a computer system programs that run, on, other programs or on hardware is an elusive one. I believe Searle doesn't really understand this subtle idea, and thus blurs many distinctions while creating other artificial ones to take advantage of human emotional responses that are evoked in the process of imagining unfamiliar ideas. He begins with what sounds like a relatively innocent situation. A man in a room with a set of English instructions, bits of paper, for manipulating some Chinese symbols. At first, you think the man is answering questions, although unbeknown to him, about restaurants, using Shankian scripts. Then Searle casually slips in the idea that this program can pass the Turing test. This is an incredible jump in complexity perhaps a millionfold increase if not more. Searle seems not to be aware of how radically it changes the whole picture to have that little assumption creep in. 
But even the initial situation, which sounds plausible enough, is in fact highly unrealistic. Imagine a human being, hand simulating a complex AL program, such as a script-based, understanding, program. To digest a full story, to go through the scripts and to produce the response, would probably take a hard eight-hour day for a human being. Actually, of course, this hand-simulated program is supposed to be passing the Turing test, not just answering a few stereotyped questions about restaurants. So let's jump up to a week per question, since the program would be so complex. We are being unbelievably generous to Searle. Now Searle asks you to identify with this poor slave of a human. He doesn't actually ask you to identify with him he merely knows you will project yourself onto this person, and vicariously experience the indescribably boring nightmare of that hand simulation. He knows your reaction will be. This is not understanding the story this is some sort of formal process. But remember, anytime some phenomenon is looked at on a scale a million times different from its familiar scale, it doesn't seem the same. When I imagine myself feeling my brain running a hundred times too slowly, of course that is paradoxical but it is what Searle wants me to do. Then of course it is agonizing, and presumably I would not even recognize the feelings at all. Throw in yet another factor of a thousand and one cannot even imagine what it would feel like. Now this is what Searle is doing. He is inviting you to identify with a non-human which he lightly passes off as a human, and by doing so he asks you to participate in a great fallacy. Over and over again he uses this ploy, this emotional trickery, to get you to agree with him that surely, an intricate system of waterpipes can't think. He forgets to tell you that a waterpipe simulation of the brain would take, say, a few trillion waterpipes with a few trillion workers standing at faucets turning them when needed, and he forgets to tell you that to answer a question it would take a year or two. He forgets to tell you, because if you remembered that, and then on your own, imagine taking a movie and speeding it up a million times, and imagine changing your level of description of the thing from the faucet level to the pipe cluster level, and on through a series of ever higher levels until you reach some sort of eventual symbolic level, why then you might say, hey, when I imagine what this entire system would be like when perceived at this time scale and level of description, I can see how it might be conscious after all. Searle is representative of a class of people who have an instinctive horror of any explaining away of the soul. I don't know why certain people have this horror while others, like me, find in reductionism the ultimate religion. Perhaps my lifelong training in physics and science in general has given me a deep awe at seeing how the most substantial and familiar of objects or experiences fades away, as one approaches the infinitesimal scale, into an eerily insubstantial ether, a myriad of ephemeral swirling vortices of nearly incomprehensible mathematical activity. This in me evokes a kind of cosmic awe. To me, reductionism does not explain away, rather, it adds mystery. I know that this journal is not the place for philosophical and religious commentary, yet it seems to me that what Searle and I have is, at the deepest level, a religious disagreement, and I doubt that anything I say could ever change his mind. He insists on things he calls, causal intentional properties, which seem to vanish as soon as you analyze them, find rules for them, or simulate them. But what those things are, other than epiphenomena, or, innocently emergent, qualities, I don't know. By B. Libet. Department of Physiology, University of California, San Francisco, California. 94,143. Mental Phenomena and Behavior. Searle states that the main argument of his paper is directed at establishing his second proposition, that instantiating a computer program is never by itself a sufficient condition of intentionality, that is, of a mental state that includes beliefs, desires, and intentions. He accomplishes this with a Gedanken experiment to show that even a human agent could instantiate the program and still not have the relevant intentionality, that is, Searle shows, in a masterful and convincing manner, that the behavior of the appropriately programmed computer could transpire in the absence of a cognitive mental state. I believe it is also possible to establish the proposition by means of an argument based on simple formal logic. We start with the knowledge that we are dealing with two different systems. System A is the computer, with its appropriate program. System B is the human being, particularly his brain. Even if System A could be arranged to behave and even to look like System B, 
in a manner that might make them indistinguishable to an external observer, system A must be at least internally different from B if A and B were identical, they would both be human beings and there would be no thesis to discuss. Let us accept the proposal that, on an input-output basis, system A and system B could be made to behave alike. Properties that we may group together under category X the possession of the relevant mental states, including understanding, beliefs, desires, intentions, and the like, may be called property Y. We know that system B has property Y. Remembering that systems A and B are known to be different, it is an error in logic to argue that because systems A and B both have property X, they must also both have property Y. The foregoing leads to a more general proposition that no behavior of a computer, regardless of how successful it may be in simulating human behavior, is ever by itself sufficient evidence of any mental state. Indeed, Searle also appears to argue for this more general case when, later in the discussion, he notes, uh, to get computers to feel pain or fall in love would be neither harder nor easier than to get them to have cognition, b. For simulation, all you need is the right input and output and a program in the middle that transforms the former into the latter. And, c, to confuse simulation with duplication is the same mistake, whether it is pain, love, cognition. On the other hand, Searle seems not to maintain this general proposition with consistency. In his discussion of, IV, the combination reply, to his analytical example or thought experiment, Searle states, if we could build a robot whose behavior was indistinguishable over a large range from human behavior, we would find it rational and indeed irresistible to attribute intentionality to it, pending some reason not to. On the basis of my argument, one would not have to know that the robot had a formal program, or whatever, that accounts for its behavior, in order not to have to attribute intentionality to it. All we need to know is that the robot's internal control apparatus is not made in the same way and out of the same stuff as is the human brain, to reject the thesis that the robot must possess the mental states of intentionality, and so on. Now, it is true that neither my nor Sorrell's argument excludes the possibility that an appropriately programmed computer could also have mental states, property Y. The argument merely states it is not warranted to propose that the robot must have mental states, Y. However, Searle goes on to contribute a valuable analysis of why so many people have believed that computer programs do impart a kind of mental process or state to the computer. Searle notes that, among other factors, a residual behaviorism or operationalism underlies the willingness to accept input-output patterns as sufficient for postulating human mental states in appropriately programmed computers. I would add that there are still many psychologists and perhaps philosophers who are similarly burdened with residual behaviorism or operationalism even when dealing with criteria for existence of a conscious subjective experience in human subjects, see Libet 1973, 1979. By William G. Lichen. Department of Philosophy, Ohio State University, Columbus, Ohio, 43210. The Functionalist Reply, Ohio State. Most versions of philosophical behaviorism have had the consequence that if an organism or device D passes a Turing test, in the sense of systematically manifesting all the same outward behavioral dispositions that a normal human does, the DOS all the same sorts of contentful or intentional states that humans do. In light of fairly obvious counterexamples to this thesis, materialist philosophers of mind have by and large rejected behaviorism in favor of a more species chauvinistic view. D's manifesting all the same sorts of behavioral dispositions we do does not alone suffice for D's having intentional states. It is necessary in addition that D produce behavior from stimuli in roughly the way that we do that D's inner functional organization be not unlike ours and that D process the stimulus input by analogous inner procedures. On this functionalist theory, to be in a mental state of such and such a kind is to incorporate a functional component or system of components of type so and so which is in a certain distinctive state of its own. Functional components are individuated according to the roles they play within their owner's overall functional organization. 1. Searle offers a number of cases of entities that manifest the behavioral dispositions we associate with intentional states but that asterisk rather plainly do not have any such states. 2. I accept his intuitive judgments about most of these cases. 
Searle plus rulebook plus pencil and paper presumably does not understand Chinese, nor does Searle with memorized rulebook or Searle with TV camera or the robot with Searle inside. Neither my stomach nor Searle's liver nor a thermostat nor a light switch has beliefs and desires. But none of these cases is a counterexample to the functionalist hypothesis. The systems in the former group are pretty obviously not functionally isomorphic at the relevant level to human beings who do understand Chinese. A native Chinese carrying on a conversation is implementing procedures of his own, not those procedures that would occur in a mock-up containing the cynical, English-speaking, American-acculturated homuncular Searle. Therefore they are not counterexamples to a functionalist theory of language understanding, and accordingly they leave it open that a computer that was functionally isomorphic to a real Chinese speaker would indeed understand Chinese also. Stomachs, thermostats, and the like, because of their brutish simplicity, are even more clearly dissimilar to humans. The same presumably is true of Shank's existing language understanding programs. I have hopes for a sophisticated version of the brain simulator, or the combination, machine, that Searle illustrates with his plumbing example. Imagine a hydraulic system of this type that does replicate, perhaps not the precise neuroanatomy of a Chinese speaker, but all that is relevant of the Chinese speaker's higher functional organization. Individual water pipes are grouped into organ systems precisely analogous to those found in the speaker's brain, and the device processes linguistic input in just the way that the speaker does. It does not merely simulate or describe this processing. Moreover, the system is automatic and does all this without the intervention of Searle or any other deus in machina. Under these conditions and given a suitable social context, I think it would be plausible to accept the functionalist consequence that the hydraulic system does understand Chinese. Searle's paper suggests two objections to this claim. First, where is the understanding in this system? All Searle sees is pipes and valves and flowing water. Reply. Looking around the fine detail of the system's hardware, you are too small to see that the system is understanding Chinese sentences. If you were a tiny, cell-sized observer inside a real Chinese speaker's brain, all you would see would be neurons stupidly, mechanically transmitting electrical charge, and in the same tone you would ask, where is the understanding in this system? But you would be wrong in concluding that the system you were observing did not understand Chinese. In like manner you may well be wrong about the hydraulic device. 3. Second, even if a computer were to replicate all of the Chinese speaker's relevant functional organization, all the computer is really doing is performing computational operations on formally specified elements. A purely formally or syntactically characterized element has no meaning or content in itself, obviously, and no amount of mindless syntactic manipulation of it will endow it with any. Reply. The premise is correct, and I agree it shows that no computer has or could have intentional states merely in virtue of performing syntactic operations on formally characterized elements. But that does not suffice to prove that no computer can have intentional states at all. Our brain states do not have the contents they do just in virtue of having their purely formal properties either, for a brain state described, syntactically, has no meaning or content on its own. In virtue of what, then, do brain states, or mental states however construed, have the meanings they do? Recent theory advises that the content of a mental representation is not determined within its owner's head, Putnam 1975 of, Fodor 1980, rather, it is determined in part by the objects in the environment that actually figure in the representation's etiology and in part by social and contextual factors of several other sorts, stitch, in preparation. Now, present-day computers live in highly artificial and stifling environments. They receive carefully and tendentiously preselected input, their software is adventitiously manipulated by uncaring programmers, and they are isolated in laboratories and offices, deprived of any normal interaction within a natural or appropriate social setting. Five for this reason and several others, Searle is surely right in saying that present-day computers do not really have the intentional states that we fancifully incline toward attributing to them. But nothing Searle has said impugns the thesis that if a sophisticated future computer not only replicated human functional organization but harbored its inner representations as a result of the right sort of causal history and had also been nurtured within a favorable social setting, we might correctly ascribe intentional states to it. 
This point may or may not afford lasting comfort to the Al community. Notes. Elvis characterization is necessarily crude and vague. For a very useful survey of different versions of functionalism and their respective foibles, see Block, 1978. I have developed and defended what I think is the most promising version of functionalism in Lycan, forthcoming. 2. For further discussion of cases of this kind, see Block, forthcoming. 3. A much expanded version of this reply appears in Section 4 of Lycan, forthcoming. 4. Do not understand Sorrell's positive suggestion as to the source of intentionality in our own brains. What, neurobiological causal properties? 5. As Fodor, forthcoming, remarks, SHRDLU as we interpret him as the victim of a Cartesian evil demon. The, blocks, he manipulates do not exist in reality. By John McCarthy. Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, Stanford University. Stanford, Caliph. 94305. Beliefs, Machines, and Theories. John Sorrell's refutation of the Berkeley answer that the system understands Chinese proposes that a person, call him Mr. Hyde, carry out in his head a process, call it Dr. Jekyll, for carrying out a written conversation in Chinese. Everyone will agree with Searle that Mr. Hyde does not understand Chinese, but I would contend, and I suppose his Berkeley interlocutors would also, that provided certain other conditions for understanding are met, Dr. Jekyll understands Chinese. In Robert Louis Stevenson's story, it seems assumed that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde time share the body, while in Sorrell's case, one interprets a program specifying the other. Sorrell's dismissal of the idea that thermostats may be ascribed belief is based on a misunderstanding. It is not a pantheistic notion that all machinery including telephones, light switches, and calculators believe. Belief may usefully be ascribed only to systems about which someone's knowledge can best be expressed by ascribing beliefs that satisfy axioms such as those in McCarthy, 1979. Thermostats are sometimes such systems. Telling a child, if you hold the candle under the thermostat, you will fool it into thinking the room is too hot, and it will turn off the furnace, makes proper use of the child's repertoire of intentional concepts. Formalizing belief requires treating simple cases as well as more interesting ones. Ascribing beliefs to thermostats is analogous to including 0 and 1 in the number system even though we would not need a number system to treat the null set or sets with just one element. Indeed we wouldn't even need the concept of set. However, a program that understands should not be regarded as a theory of understanding any more than a man who understands as a theory. A program can only be an illustration of a theory, and a useful theory will contain much more than an assertion that the following program understands about restaurants. I can't decide whether this last complaint applies to Searle or just to some of the AL researchers he criticizes. By John C. Marshall. Neuropsychology Unit, University Department of Clinicat Neurology, The Radcliffe Infirmary, Oxford, England.